hi, listeners. It's Autumn coming to you from the editing room. I'm still on the call with Nia, so she's talking, and I can't really hear her right now because I'm talking over her. I just wanted to say that this is episode 69. Nice, 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 nice. and welcome back to Ornate Stairwells, a movie podcast. We're here with what is probably going to be our last episode of 2022 due to, um, you know, holiday scheduling issues. Uh, I'm Autumn. I'm joined as always by Neve. Hi, I'm Neve. Uh, and yeah. What a, what a fucking year it's been for this podcast. <laughs> yeah. We won't... Uh... Uh, next time we're doing the whole like here's the best movies we watched in 2022 thing so i don't know how much we want to okay. say about it but yeah we're we're not doing that right now i was like man this episode's gonna be really long if we do that too no but... we're not doing that right now i just okay um i guess i was just thinking about it because i've been listening to um uh i downloaded every episode of stairwell since we've done about since about december of last year <laughs> yeah and i've been listening to those and i've been really enjoying those and i'm just thinking about 
how much stuff we've gone through on this second year of the podcast. Because, like, the first year, we started in, like, April, and it was, like, kind of slow going for the first couple months. Like, I've, I feel like we had a couple really good episodes to start out, but, like, it took us a little while to figure out what the show was. This is, like, a full year of us just knowing what we do here <laughs> now. Yeah. And, um... Yeah, I've really enjoyed it, and I've been thinking about that a lot this week. Um, and yeah, I just wanted to say thank you to the listeners for sticking with us through this whole year. Is this now not we we sometimes put things in here that aren't movies, but not main movies. There are two hundred and ninety three movies that we have in the spreadsheet. Christ Almighty. <laughs> For, like, the other movies we talk about. <laughs> 293 movies, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, okay. <laughs> On top of rough estimate here, let's say 50 movies. Uh-huh. I, when I when I just do the highlight, the other column, the count says 59. Let's say 50. When you, when you put it in that perspective, it, it basically is like a movie a day. It's basically a movie a day between the two of us. Yeah, if you wanted to watch every movie that we talk about on this podcast, every single one, you'd be watching a movie a day. (laughs) About. You know, we joked, um, occasionally you and I will get, like, followers on Letterboxd, and we'll kind of peek in on them, and I'll be like, oh my god, this person only watches movies that we talked about on stairwells. That's so... And to me, it's weird, because I'm like, oh, we're such, like, a little niche thing i can't imagine being tastemakers for a person you know let alone i've seen this happen multiple times but then you say we've (laughs) we've got 293 (laughs) movies in the spreadsheet and i'm like okay well i guess i see how that happens (laughs) yeah if you watch one movie a week and you're just like well that sounded good on stairwells i see how this (laughs) happens if you watch three movies a week you're you're like that sounded good and they talked about it on stairwells (laughs) yeah you know like one or two movies that week you pick are ones that we talked about (laughs) and then we go and we look at your profile when you follow us and we're like wow they watch a lot of movies that we talked about yeah um Yet I, I have yet to to check one of those, and uh, there's 350 movies or whatever <laughs> that, are, that are all movies we talked about. Uh, that'd be wild. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, so I watched 14 movies. Uh, I watched 13 movies uh, on my own. There's one movie yeah. that we both watched today separately, and then there's one movie that we yeah. watched together a few nights ago. Uh, you also well, had a couple things that, that you watched, and so all that to say, we should probably get rolling because this is going to be a long one, I feel like. <laughs> yeah. Unless you had something else to say, I feel like it may be interrupted Oh, I, I was just going to say that uh, basically I was like, I'm watching this Humphrey Bogart movie, and you're like, Humphrey Bogart, you say? <laughs> so you watched it too. <laughs> yeah. Basically. It is basically my favorite Humphrey Bogart movie, but we'll get there in two hours or whatever. <laughs> By the way, if you can't tell from... Normally we just cross talk, but now mm. it's like I say something and I'm like, "Oh, did I interrupt you?" We're recording remotely. There's a little bug going around. Um, you know, just toddler things. Yeah, literally got uh, out of being sick from something and then uh, new cough. New um, cough. Yeah, 
when you were over for when we were watching Die Hard, I think was when uh, my toddler started having the new cough, and you're like, "Yeah, that sounds new." <laughs> yeah, so okay, so what ha- um, what had happened? And now I have was, it. So <laughs> what happened was you told me, "Oh, they might have a new cough, or it might just be the last gasp of." whatever they previous did, previously had. And I could hear, like, the optimism in your voice, like, oh, maybe it's just the last thing. Maybe this isn't new. And then it, Emily is like, no, nah, it's a new cough. And like, <laughs> a couple times throughout the night, I, like, heard them cough, and I'm like, that's a different cough. That's a new cough. <laughs> yeah. so, anyway, I have, anyway, I have the new cough. <laughs> you've got the new cough. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the one thing with this being remote is I can try and edit this stuff out before. I'm assuming you're editing this one because I have a, I have a big work day tomorrow. Yeah, I'm probably gonna edit that tonight and just stay up late since I close tomorrow. You know, Godspeed. Oh, also, um, I guess before we get into it, I should note that because we're recording remote and because Nora is home, and I didn't want to just like bother Nora with like a four hour podcast. Um. I've got a different podcast setup than usual. I've got the mic um, on my bed. I've got the laptop stacked on some books on the bed. And then I'm in a Nora's gamer chair <laughs> in the bedroom. I, I listened to the audio a little bit before we hit, before we got going. And I think it sounds okay as long as I'm looking toward the mic. When I look at the door, as I just, my na- eyes naturally wander, I think this sounds really bad. But as long as I'm looking at the mic, we're basically fine but if you hear any weirdness yeah. i apologize listeners well let's get into it you watched a bunch of movies i watched a bunch of movies up at the top of our little spreadsheet here exportaudio slash stairwell quality if you ever want to look at all the movies we talk about i've bunched up here the first one two three four five things here um yeah. i watched and have very little to say about uh so we'll just get through them real real fast um first up Hexen or Hexen? Um, can you give me a pronunciation on on this? It's Danish. Um, Hexon. Hexon. Okay. The Swedish pronunciation looks like Hexen to me, and so that's what I've always said. But um, Hexon. Hexon. Anyway, so Hexon, uh, nineteen twenty two silent film. Um, we talked about it on Export Audio a little bit. Um, and that movie's fucking phenomenal. Uh, when we talked about it on export, we mostly talked about the next movie I'm going to mention here. Uh, we, uh, I just want to say, please do not, do not sleep on Hexen. It's fucking great. It's one of the, it's maybe the best silent movie I've seen. Uh, me, infamous silent movie, indifferent person, agnostic person. Yeah. Uh, we still got to get you to watch some Buster Keaton. Yeah, I still have not seen a single silent comedy. Haven't seen any Chaplin or Keaton, so. Um, that's enough on Hexen. Uh, next, I've got Persona. I will not be talking about Persona here because you and me are just going to cover Persona when we get to Mulholland Drive. You, we've done a podcast and yeah. a half about Mulholland Drive. Let's just do Persona next time we get there. <laughs> um, it's one of my favorite movies, but I don't really want to talk about it without having seen it because so much of it is just like the images in a way that's hard to keep in your head as like a memory after... Last time I watched it, I was, like, just figuring out and coming out as trans. So it's been a while. Yeah, yeah. Um, Persona, it's one of the best movies ever made. It's fucking great. If I was going to make a list of... If if 
I don't know, if maybe Sight and Sound sent me a ballot for what I think are the 10 best movies ever made, I think Persona would probably be on that list. Just, yeah, just maybe, throwing maybe. something out there. You know, yeah. if if it was, say, 2032 and Sight and Sound wanted to send me a ballot, I'm just telling you I wouldn't totally fuck it up by putting Godzilla Final Wars on there. I'd also put Persona. <laughs> Anyway, speaking of Godzilla Final Wars, um, I also watched uh, Invasion of Astro Monster. Um, as longtime fans of my work will know, that um, Showa Godzilla movies are basically sleep aids for me, and I slept through about 45 minutes of this rewatching of Invasion of Astro Monster. And yet, it remains one of my favorite Godzilla movies because the first 20 minutes are fucking incredible, and the last 20 minutes are fucking incredible. And I, you know, I slept through the other. Most of it. <laughs> Who cares? You heard it here, folks. <laughs> Great for sleeping through. I. It's like it is like Pavlovian at this point. I watched this movie at like three in the afternoon and fell asleep. <laughs> I've just fallen asleep to show a Godzilla movies on purpose so many times that now it's hard for me to stay awake through them. Yeah. Um. Next, I've got Diary of the Dead by George Romero. Um, that is a 2007 found footage movie. And um, later this week in this, uh, or later this week, you'll be able to go to exportaudio slash franchise or the Patreon, depending on how you listen to this stuff. And you will be able to hear all my thoughts about Diary of the Dead. So don't need to get into that. <laughs> yeah. I thought that movie was fine, positive. Nora thought that movie was miserable she hated that movie <laughs> um it seemed like just from your reactions on uh locked twitter that you were really enjoying enjoying it at the beginning and then uh something it just continued or something happened i'm sure people will hear about it the, but, the, uh, the movie has like one good idea basically mm-hmm. and unfortunately one good idea is not <laughs> does not 90 minutes make you know <laughs> yeah um the mo- the moment that you're probably talking about where i you saw me tweet oh this got really bad all of a sudden is when the deaf amish joke character shows up um, oh yeah that would do it <laughs> i don't think i've seen this one but that would do it just that description that would do it um yeah uh and last but far from least um is La Jeti, um, which it, I put on because I had to be somewhere in an hour. This is a sight and sound 100 movie, and it's 30 minutes long. And I thought, it's 30 minutes long. I'll just watch this. Not thinking about the fact that I was really high, and not impaired by the fact that, for some reason, Criterion, the Criterion channel does not offer subtitles for La Jeti, um, and so it it is in English. I could understand it, but like, I, I I have a hard even when I'm sober, I have a hard time following a movie if it doesn't have subtitles. <laughs> yeah, and I was high, and this movie, um, uh, is just still images as a narrator like tells you things, and so it's really 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 cool. I was really taken with this movie, 
but I, I can't tell you a goddamn thing about it. <laughs> because I missed a full, like, 50% of what the movie was doing, because I just couldn't follow the narration at all, you know? Yeah. Because it's only 30 minutes, I think probably sometime um, this week, I have, I have found a way to watch this movie with subtitles, uh, we'll say. And so probably sometime in the next week, I will just watch this again, because... It's also got a really complicated, like, science fiction-y premise and, like, a time loop that's really cool. Uh, and so, like, I'd like to just watch it a little more closely and just, like, actually have a take on it, you know? Um, yeah. I just say the first time I was just kind of taking in the images. Sometimes you listen to a song, you don't listen to the words the first time, you just get kind of the vibes. That's how I'm treating this first viewing of La JT, so. Yeah. Uh, do you want to do stairwells rankings? Uh, stairwells for uh, Hexon uh, or Hexon. I've said that differently every single time. I shouldn't have. I <laughs> shouldn't have. I shouldn't have asked you. What the fuck was that sound? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> are you are you about to be attacked by a ghost on this podcast or something? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I heard a perfectly normal like crinkling paper sound maybe but because i sometimes will see like house centipedes in my bedroom my brain filled in whatever sound i just heard was definitely a centipede <laughs> even though the centipede would not make a sound like that even though the centipede would not make a sound yes <laughs> um so uh hexen b minus for stairs persona f um invasion of astro monster question 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 diary of the dead Question, 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 leaning, probably D minus if I actually thought about it, you know? Um, yeah. And La GT, question, question, question. Okay. So, that's me, that's me for the movies that I don't have much to say about. Unfortunately, we're about to get into a much longer series of discussions. <laughs> um, well, not yet, because I have to talk about... Uh, so... We we have just been home, even like not trying to entertain a toddler while we work. But like when the kids got a cough, we probably shouldn't go to the playground where other kids are and stuff. Uh, so we, we were watching like we were putting on some stuff occasionally when, you know, even when we were playing, we'd sometimes put stuff on. Uh, one of the things that uh, Emily put on was the Beauty and the Beast, a 30th celebration, um, which is so it's like basically the the story of beauty and the beast um and so there's parts where it will play like the actual original animation but then for a lot of the like uh action scenes and especially like uh musical parts um you then get like performers on a stage and it seems like this is like done on some actual stage because you see parts where they're projecting uh on the back like the scene and and then maybe the actors will be watching it, reacting to it, and then they will start doing the dance when it's, like, time for that. The um, director of this movie primarily does concert movies, it looks like. So, yeah, that sounds about right. Yes. Um, and it, it was bizarre to me because, like, any any affection that I have for Disney mostly comes from, like... They do do good anime. Like, it's the same affection that I have for Studio Ghibli stuff, mm -hmm. where 
not all of it is necessarily like my favorite movie, but it's like, it is well animated most of the time. Uh, Disney, like, especially at this period was still a pretty good animation studio. Um, and when I think about Beauty and the Beast, I think about, oh, again, maybe this is apocryphal, but this is what my, my professor taught me. Like, Akira came out. They used, um, computer animation stuff to like help with, uh, doing the hand-drawn animation things. And, um, Disney saw that and was like, oh no, like what's happening over in Japan is going to eat our lunch, basically. Um, if they're doing this stuff and we're not able to keep pace with that, like we're screwed. Um, and so there's this big shift and they put things towards computer animation in a way that they never have before, including the big ballroom dance scene that like really utilizes, like they had this whole thing animated and they scrapped it, um, in order to do it with the computer animation where they could get all the moving pillars and everything. And that to me is like, when I think of Beauty and the Beast, I think of that ballroom scene first and foremost, um, and by taking all of the parts that are going to be more lusciously animated because they are the musical moments and then not showing you the animation and cutting to dancers doing some interpretive dance, like it was still fun for dance. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was like, it, it would, it was just like, this is not what beauty and the beast is to me. You know, like this is not, if I was trying to celebrate Beauty and the Beast, I wouldn't take the the parts with, that have the most intense animation going into it. Oh, um, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and then not show you that part and have like a dance doing it as if the the big thing about it is the music or something. Like it, it's, right. it's centering the music of Beauty and the Beast in a way that I think actually for me and the legacy of it is like the animation and its position as this like um, pivot point within Disney studio away from purely hand-drawn animation to the incorporation of computers. And then we get like the, the Pixar and the Pixarification of everything that continues from there. But like Beauty and the Beast is at this moment where there's this blending of those techniques. None of it is talking about that. None of it is focused on that. And it's all in a way that makes sense for Disney doing a thing that's celebrating their own, like 30 years of their own uh, movie. It's all just so like self-congratulatory about just like how much of a classic it is, but not in a way that's giving you anything actually interesting to sink your teeth into it's just like look at these masters who created this this wonderful movie and now let's like watch this stuff um so i didn't enjoy it that much and also i don't remember any stairs because mm-hmm. it's mostly on a stage and people are dancing around so uh f for stairs um uh, i wouldn't really recommend it i don't think there was anything in there that like Unless you really like Beauty and the Beast and you just want to see it. Like, there's nothing in there that I thought was interesting just from a, uh, someone who cares about, like, animation and film history and stuff. Yeah. So. Makes sense. Uh, anyway, you're going to do psychological warfare on me? Yeah, while you were talking, um, I, I was looking at the front page of Letterboxd and became aware of something that I don't know that you're aware of because the two of us don't really pay attention to, um current films like this and so i'm just gonna make you aware of something i'm just gonna send you a a link here you just click that link and you tell me what you think this is uh uh Uh, 
listeners, I I have linked oh. Nia to the 2022 film Living. Uh. <laughs> What's up? Um. I so I know what. Uh huh. So if people don't know what the title Ikiru means, it means to live. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I hate this. (laughs) Listeners, uh, I became aware of a, a, and have now made Nia aware of a, a remake of the film Ikiru, this is starring Bill Nighy. Um, and I, I don't, uh, I don't know anything. Maybe we could watch this movie and we Amy could. Lou fuck, Wood? Yeah, Amy Lou Wood. Amy Lou Wood. It says I'm not yeah. familiar with her. Um, maybe we could watch this movie and find out it's really good. I have doubts. <laughs> um. I think of course, of course they have Ikiru to is just misguided. <laughs> yeah. Of course they have to do it uh the rebuilding of Britain post World War II. Yeah. Because those are equivalent things, right? I mean it's also like a bureaucrat in uh post World War II Japan, but yeah. I mean um, Britain and Japan were both bombed uh uh in the war. So basically both islands that were just bombed during the war, so kind of the same, you know, post-war situation, kind of the same sort of yeah. social, economic situation <laughs> that leads to the production of... of. I just... The... Yeah. There's still... Pol- there's political dimensions to Ikaru, but it, it's... The, the film is first and foremost a humanist thing, mm-hmm. where I think you, c- you could do this. It's like... Iker is not a movie about, like, American occupation in the way that even, like, Battles Without is about the American occupation of Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, I just, why why can't people watch things with subtitles is what I want to <laughs> What's that? Uh, I, know, I know it's hard sometimes, but, like... What's that Bong Joon-ho quote that's like, a whole world of cinema is opened up to you if you can get over the one-inch tall barrier of subtitles? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, there might not... I I understand there are people who can't read subtitles for, for various reasons, but, like, most people, you know... Also, hopefully there are dubs increasingly for things like that, but... It's also um, just, like... I I have not seen Ikiru. Um, I should qualify a lot of what I'm saying with this. I, I mostly am doing psychological warfare on you because it's your favorite movie. Um, it's up there. And in some ways, I guess, making this a period piece about post-World War II Britain is kind of it is, it is still distinctly different than like 
it being contemporary Japan that, that Ikiru is talking about. Yeah, yeah. I- Ikiru is not a period piece. <laughs> you know? Yes. It is very specifically about, like, the the things that you have to do as a person in, like, your current modern uh, existence to try to make the world better for the people around you and all of the ways that, like, bureaucracy and hierarchy and uh, all of these systems make it extremely easy to, like, ignore that. Mm-hmm. To, like, ignore the thing that you, you, you actually, like, as a human being, need to try to recognize, like, you have limited time on this earth and you should be using it to help other people. Right. Um, and if you make it a period piece, it's then very different than having something. But also, there's something about, like trying to fully contemporize this i think it would be better than doing it as a period piece in in uh england um like post world war 2 but also i think something in in trying to contemporize it would uh also just feel like hokey mm-hmm. um in its own way uh but at least would be a little bit more i think to direct to the spirit of this which is like hey <laughs> you should try you should try to do something Mm-hmm. <laughs> you uh view, person watching this should try to do something. Um uh, what I will say is that um it seems they did actually get a um Japanese writer on the film. Seems like a mostly yeah. English production, but the writer is uh Kazuo uh Ishiguro um who uh Born in Nagasaki. Um, it said something interesting that I've now lost. Um, in 2017, he was an or- awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature. So probably not a... Okay. He's only got like four film credits, so probably not primarily a writer of films. But I am not familiar with his, um, you know, work in literature, really. Yeah. Um. Anyway, we should keep moving. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I hate his bowler hat. I hate it. That's the that's the thing is it's not that was what really got to me, right? About the poster is I was just going to be uh, there was a temptation to just be like, "Oh, did you see their do they did a remake of Ikiru?" It's the fact that he's trying to wear the same hat and the same outfit that um our man Takashishimura uh wears in um Ikiru. It's like trying to evoke that outfit, but that outfit was not an outfit back then. It was just a nice looking suit. <laughs> yeah. Um also I just I don't believe in this man's ability to contort his face into such like despair and sadness as when you see uh him swinging the end of like towards the end of Ikiru. Um, with his very sad, like, crying face singing, um, it, I just don't believe that this, that this British man can, like, achieve that. Yeah. That's, that's the um, thing, is, I, I've, I've seen Bill Nye in a number of things. I like him. I, I have no strong feelings about him, but I like him. Um, yeah. Takashi Shimura is one of the best to ever do it. <laughs> yeah. And you gotta, like... I, once again, not seen Ikiru, you're sort of comparing yourself to one of the best to ever do it in his most iconic role, you know? 
<laughs> yeah. Um, I sim I simply would not set myself up for failure like this. <laughs> is what I'd say. Anyway, anyway, um, <laughs> let's talk about Hiroshima Monomore. <clears throat> <coughs> <coughs> I'm the one with the cough. Yeah, I don't know where the hell that came from. Ah, I guess I don't have to go to work tomorrow now. <laughs> um, Hiroshima Monomore, uh, 1959 film directed by Alain Rene. Um, I don't remember why I picked this movie. Um... But I was home one night, and Nora was at work, and I wanted to put on something that was, like, in the 90-minute range, not the, like... Because there's a couple things that I've been thinking about watching that are in the, like, four-hour range, and I was like, oh, let me pick something smaller here. Yeah. Is this one of the Sight and Sound movies? <clears throat> Maybe. I don't know. Anyway, I'm Maybe. not going to look it up right now. Um, And I, I, do, I do know that... Um, uh, Repertory screenings recently covered um, last year uh, Marienbad, um, which is the next movie by this director. Um, and so I sort of had that in my mind when I picked this movie. Uh, this is one of the most beautiful movies I've ever seen in my whole life. And I know I come on this podcast and I say that about something every week, but oh my God, Hiroshima Monomore is one of the most beautiful movies I've ever seen in my fucking life <laughs> have you ever seen it um i think so um well for listeners who don't know um this is a movie that is a french japanese co-production um after so alain rene um <clears throat> uh worked on a or directed a a uh, Holocaust documentary called Night and Fog, um, mm -hmm. which came out in the mid-50s and was commissioned to do a um, similar documentary about the um, <clears throat> uh, bombing of Hiroshima. And so the first 15 minutes of this movie... Night and Fog, I should note, is a 30-minute movie. The first 15 minutes of Hiroshima Monomore are are kind of that documentary a little bit. Um, yeah. Intercut with a sex scene between the two uh, leads of this movie. And I'm a, I'm a little disappointed that, like, I thought that the documentary element was going to run through the whole movie. It's kind of just the first 15 minutes, which is a little bit of a bummer to me. But... Yeah. Um... So the first 15 minutes you get this documentary stuff intercut with this sex scene and then um the sex scene ends the documentary stuff ends and you're just taken into this um <clears throat> like love story between this Japanese businessman um he's an architect and he's maybe in politics he hints at and this French actress who is over here shooting a movie that's like lightly implied to be like the movie that you're watching you know um yeah in some way and so um they have this like one night stand and they're both married and they both kind of know that the other one's married but neither of them wants to admit it even though they both know um and but he's just like 
hey, I have one night stands. I'm not the most faithful husband in the world. Um, this was different. <laughs> and she's like, she clearly agrees with him, but she like is like, I've got children in France. I can't be with you like that. I have, yeah. I have children in France. And so the next like hour and change of the movie is um <clears throat> them talking about, you know, like he wants her to take a chance on love and she doesn't want to do it. And then there's a weird uh, plot line in there about how she fell in love with a Nazi during the war and was humiliated for that as she should have been. <laughs> um, uh, I think our friend M was pretty negative on that plot point of the story plot line of the movie. I'm positive on it, but I don't like without you, Nia having seen it recently to like have a discussion. I don't know how much I can like really dig into everything that's going on there, but, um, long, long story short, I, this is one of the most beautiful movies I've ever fucking seen in my life. <laughs> yeah. Also, um, there's a bit in this movie where she goes to the um, airport bar and it's called the Casablanca bar or something. And I was like, oh, I see what you're doing, movie. Okay. You you have found the exact heartstrings of mine to play and you're playing them perfectly. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um... But yeah, I just, I, I was really, um, really taken with this movie and really like, <clears throat> I saw, I guess my last thought about this movie is, um, so as a person who doesn't, hates the Godard movies I've seen, hates the Truffaut yeah. movies I've seen, um, for a long time thought, I just don't like French New Wave. And then over the last, like, year and a half of doing this podcast, like, I watched Cleo from 5 to 7, and I watched, um, you know, um, Elevator to the Gallows, and I watched this movie, um, and I have started to, I, I remember saying about Elevator to the Gallows, um, that I sort of started to understand the appeal of the French New Wave, because it was it, it hitting on a lot of, like, classic Hollywood, um, ideas and aesthetics but it's more risque and more um you know doesn't have the haze code and so it can be a little more you know scandalous or what have you um and this movie i just was like okay now i really get it like i had that sort of thought with elevator to the gallows and this movie just sort of opened up to me the full possibility of where that thought takes you you know <clears throat> yeah um so yeah um no yeah it's good um i do i do remember i saw this but it was back in my when i was watching a lot of french new wave stuff i figured um, it was probably like a grad school which, thing for you no this is high school okay um so it's been a while yeah it's been 800 years you know yeah <laughs> Um, I am a timeless vampire. That's correct. So then, the next movie on my list, um, after uh, Hiroshima Monomore, like I say, I um had some things on my mind that were like in the more four hour range, and so I thought about watching some of those, and then I was like, I have Once Upon a Time in the West on my hard drive, and that movie's three hours long, 
and I'd like to get it off my hard drive. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, and I, I've seen it, but not since high school. And so I was like, well, let me like warm up to like Satan Tango, you know, by uh, this three yeah. hour movie. <laughs> let me warm up to Jean Dielman, you know. Um, and uh, yeah, just revisited an old favorite. Um, it's fucking Once Upon a Time in the West. If you like these sorts of movies, it's the best one of them. You know, <laughs> yeah. Um, there was a time where I was like, "Oh no, I really like Fistful of Dollars best because it's really ninety minutes. It's tight. You know, it's remaking Yojimbo, and Yojimbo is one of the best movies." Um, no, fool, fool, fool. Fistful of Dollars is good. I'm not discounting Fistful of yeah. Dollars, but Once Upon a Time in the West is better because of the epic scale. Much like Seven Samurai is better because of the epic scale, I think this movie is better because of its epic scale. Also, it helps that it's not directly ripping off a better movie <laughs> yeah this is doing its own thing um uh yeah it's fucking once upon a time in the west i don't really know how much i should say about it <laughs> um the thing about yojimbos is you can't really beat yojimbo yeah like not even sanjiro can beat yojimbo and it's the closest <laughs> fistful of dollars at least it's doing its own like thing. you know if if <clears throat> If if Yojimbo is 100% Yojimbo, Fistful of Dollars is like 90%. It's really good. I really mm. like Yojimbo. Or I really like Fistful of Dollars. It ain't fucking Yojimbo. <laughs> Clint Eastwood is not Toshiro Mifune. He just ain't. <laughs> um, well, the music in Once Upon a Time in the, the West is my favorite, too. Yeah, I, th I think so, too. Um... I obviously it's like a thing that people talk about with these movies, but um, I, until this viewing, I hadn't really appreciated like Once Upon a Time in the West specifically is like almost like a musical, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, and I can't really explain that to you if you haven't seen the movie, but like if you've seen the movie, you kind of know what I'm talking about. Yeah, so where it's like it's not, but like the music is still very key. Yeah, um, and like is given space, and 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 in some ways, when that guy plays his harmonica, it serves the same function as a like song and dance routine in the movie. Yeah, you know, um, so, um, good fucking movie. Good fucking movie. Uh, and then I'm going to switch these two around from how I have them on the spreadsheet. Um, so, uh, I watched, um, as tears go by and, um, I have written here the like, uh, Cantonese title because that's how Criterion has it listed, but I will just say the English translation because I don't trust my ability to pronounce the Cantonese, um, uh, is yeah. Age of Bloom. Age of Bloom is a... Three minute Wong Kar Wai um, short film that he uh, released in 2000 or 2001. Um, and it is, he assembled it from various footage that was found in just a warehouse in California that is like, um, like some home movies and some like, um, actual movies for lack of a better term um that were all like chinese movies that were very much like of the period 
that In the Mood for Love is uh, taking place in. Um, and so you just see lots of footage of, of women in the sorts of dresses uh, that uh, Maggie Chung wears in that movie and men in suits in the same style that Tony Lung wears in that movie. Um, and it's like three minutes long and there's no dialogue. And so it's kind of doing the same type of love story that In the Mood for Love is doing. But, you know, it's three minutes of archival footage. So there's kind of like a limit on how much he can do that. But he's I think he still gets pretty darn close to like what he's trying to do in that, you know, feature feature length thing, you know, like, yeah, um, it is very much like an intertext for in the mood for love. Like, I don't think um, I don't think it would have hit the same for me if I did not love that movie the way that I do. But um, yeah, really, really cool little thing. Glad I just saw that on the channel and just put it on. So, yeah. Um, <clears throat> and then the actual um, thing here is that I was just I was like, I want to watch a Wong Kar Wai movie. And so I just kind of impulse put on um, his first feature film, um, As Tears Go By. Um, it stars Andy Lau, uh, who you might know from Infernal Affairs, from me talking about Infernal Affairs on this co- podcast constantly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and Maggie Chung. Uh, Andy Lau. Uh, stop, okay, stop me if you've heard this one. This is a really original premise, but you know, maybe if you see any similarities to um, other movies out there, you just let me know, okay? So Andy Lau is like kind of a criminal type, kind of a deadbeat who's like getting a little too old for this. And he's got like a younger brother who's like definitely like not as good at being a criminal and is definitely going to get the both of them killed. And Andy Lau should really just kind of stop being a criminal, but he doesn't really know how to stop being a criminal, you know, and he's kind of scared to do anything else. Um, And then uh, Maggie Chung is like an innocent girl who's gonna um she can fix him <laughs> you know yeah and then, and then this is a real twist ending he dies at the end of the movie ah <laughs> uh, oh the first set are alive <laughs> and the second dead are alive and every battles <laughs> without movie and every american gangster movie and every french new wave gangster movie i know but saying the first dead are alive was the funniest one to do <laughs> <laughs> this is just kind of Wong car why doing breathless way better than breathless um that's really what this is um it's great it's a fucking Wong car why movie what do you want from me i loved it yeah <laughs> I just descri- I described to you Wong Kar Wai kind of makes br- kind of just does a remake of Breathless and I like that about exactly as much as you would expect from me to if you know how I feel about Wong Kar Wai movies <laughs> if you've seen Wong Kar Wai movies it's one of those <laughs> yeah the, the one you thing- should mm-hmm. you should really rewatch Breathless at some point I feel like you're just gonna like it so much more than you do like yeah, it's one of it's one of those movies that I've I have rewatched it somewhat recently. Not since I got back into movies, but since I have transitioned. So like the last four years, I want to say, and I still didn't like it the last time. But eh, maybe I think the I think the thing I need to do is I need to watch like a Band Apart. Yeah, I think I need to watch another Godard movie that's kind of in the same space without just rewatching Breathless. Because I've only seen like two yeah. or three of his movies, so. Um, 
I do kind of enjoy Band Apart. But, um, or Band Apart, however you, however I, you want to I say I it. don't know how to say French. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. Um, it's the it's the it's the language I least try with. <laughs> um, mostly because they they, I've seen enough uh like Eurovision and everything to know that it's basically like uh second to English in terms of forcing other people to speak it. <laughs> so, two little aesthetic notes about as tears go by before we move on. I should rate all the stairwells for this little segment I've done here. Um. But two little aesthetic notes is that one, this is Wong Kar Wai's one and only 80s movie, and boy, does it look like an 80s movie. <laughs> if you want to see way more neon than even Chungking Express has, boy, do I have a movie for you. <laughs> <laughs> if you watch Chungking Express and you thought not enough neon, I've got a great, I've got great news for you. <laughs> uh, and the other Chungking Express note is that I wish I loved anything as much as Wong Kar Wai loves uh, Cantonese covers of English pop songs. There's a there's a um, cover of um, oh what is it? Uh, I'm gonna have to look this up because it's it's really good. Uh, as tears go by, song. Uh, fuck, there's a song called "As Tears Go By Wong Kar Wai." <laughs> <laughs> Um, uh, it always lights me when. Breath away. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> There's a really good cover of that song <laughs> in this movie, um, and he has so much fun with it because he has like. This is a little bit spoilery, but I this will tie into the stairwells thing. So this plays over a montage of um, Maggie Chung and Andy Lau's like first real date, you know. And they go yeah. to the hotel where he's staying, and they're standing in front of the stairwells, and the song cuts out. And he's like, are you coming up to my room with me? And she's like, no, I couldn't. I have my doctor boyfriend. And he's like, come on. And she's like, no, doctor boyfriend. And he's like, okay. And he like walks away. He walks up the stairs, out of focus, and she like stands there thinking... And then she follows him up the stairs, and the and the song kicks back in. It's so good. <laughs> it's so good. It's the best incredible thing I've ever seen in my fucking life. <laughs> um. Yeah. Yeah. Uh. So S for stairs for as tears go by. F for stairs for Age of Bloom. A for Once Upon a Time in the West. There's just a really cool scene where. Uh, Charles Bronson like makes his big entrance on a stairwell in the saloon and then S for stairs in Hiroshima Montemore because there's this really cool um, like stairwell in this like modernist Japanese hotel that the actress is staying in um, and she like she like is like no I couldn't possibly stay with you and she walks up the stairs and she gets up to her room and she like thinks and she goes in the door she comes out of the door she runs back to him back down the stairs and so it's you know fucking great yeah it's everything you want <laughs> <laughs> the, the the criteria for stairs as originally established in this podcast is walking up contemplating um a horrible mistake and then um walking down 
having committed to the horrible mistake. And that's what she does. Yeah. With that, I'm going to... I've changed... We'll talk about it when I get to it, but I've changed the rating. Well, I'm, right. do, I'm done with my little block of movies here, so you want to talk about the, the your next movie on this list that you just changed the rating on? Yeah, so um, I watched Der Amata <laughs> Kenesher uh, Freund. Ah. <clears throat> um... The American Friend by Vim Vendors. Yeah! Um, <laughs> this podcast's second favorite director. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, for people who don't know, it is a it is a crime movie. Uh, Dennis Hopper is living in Hamburg. Um, and he is involved in, like, he, he's basically, like, going to somebody who's doing forgeries, and then he's working on, like, selling them. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's kind of like a middleman in this, in this like scheme of selling forgeries of, uh, you know, paintings. Um, and, uh, at one of the auctions, um, he meets, uh, Bruno Gantz's character, uh, Jonathan, um, or, you know, Jonathan would be the, the English pronunciation, but, um, and he's a, a picture framer. Um, you get lots and lots of poignant shots of him, um, building the frames and then holding it up so that it's like framing him, you know, Mm -hmm. um, as he's doing it. But anyway, uh, he refuses to, to shake Dennis Hopper's hand. Um, this moment in the movie fully, uh, capturing the actual, uh, sort of energy apparently behind uh dennis hopper and bruno gantz yeah um, um i've told this story on the podcast before but um supposedly um uh <clears throat> bruno gantz you know consummate professional of, of stage and screen for decades um is hired for this movie and he memorizes his lines he memorizes the whole script he's you know rehearses <laughs> and yeah. uh dennis hopper shows up like a month late to shooting uh fresh off of apocalypse now um has not read the script basically and uh bruno gans apparently just spent every day on set about to punch this dude <laughs> and you can, um, you can tell because the movie is about how they kind of hate each other and then they kind of grow to be friends through this like you know uh, crazy situation, but they kind of still hate each other a little bit at the end, and that's kind of <laughs> the real life yeah. vibe. For like to hear Vin Vendors uh, tell it, he's like, by the last day of filming, they were fine, but like, I think he'd punch him if he saw him now. <laughs> yeah, the the energy at the beginning really is just like, oh, these actors hate each other, um, and then they become friends throughout it. But like, I feel like there's just so much animosity there that like. Even if the script was like, and then they become good friends, they just can't act it. They just can't act that they're good friends. <laughs> uh, but it makes it better that like so there's too. always yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, so uh, Dennis Hopper uh, being involved in criminal activities um, is going to be hired by uh, some French gangster guy. Um, mm-hmm. I forget his name. I forget what actor plays him. Uh, but basically French criminal is like, I want you to, to kill a, a rival gangster. Um, and he declines, but it's like, ah, you should, you should get this guy. Um, being Bruno Gantz, uh, basically he's just pissed off that he got slighted at when they, when they first met. Um, I think that's like the only explanation that's really given. Um, 
Hmm. But anyway, um, he then spreads rumors uh, that, so the, I think I mentioned this, but Bruno Gantz's character is dying of uh, cancer. Um, and so he spreads rumors that the, the illness is worsening. Um, and it's revealed later on also um, like paid for falsified medical records that would um, like confirm that stuff was getting worse as well. Um, but basically just pulls in Bruno Gantz into this, like, you're going to be a hitman now, uh, puts pressure on him. Um, he convinced that he's going to die soon. Uh, wanting to take care of his wife and kids, um, mm. you know, becomes more and more involved in this, uh, this criminal enterprise. Um, and so there, there's one murder, uh, which is the stairwell scene, which is, uh, they're on an escalator and Bruno Gantz is like, going up the escalator and the, the criminal he has to kill is at like writing up as well. And towards the very top, he finally uh, gets him. I think he shoots him. I think it's a shooting and not, I think yeah, so. A, yeah. 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 It's with a gun. Um, the other one is just such like a comedy of error. So, but this one's far cleaner, uh, but shoots him and then like runs down, you know, so going up facing this, this bad thing he's going to do and then uh, commits <laughs> to it. And then it has to run down it. Uh, to face the consequences, which are just getting pulled more and more into this scheme and everything going more and more off the rails. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, I'm not going to spoil all the stuff with the ending. Um, I will say that there's another murder, uh, that, as I said, becomes a comedy of errors. Uh, it's just a, it's on a train. Um, and there's like s- stuff involving trying to hide corpses in a, uh, like the the toilet on the train and everything it's ridiculous uh like it's this brief like cohen kind of uh criminal yeah, farce absolutely um, the cohen's yeah. love this movie i don't know that yes. but i know it you know yes they do <laughs> <laughs> no no confirmation here but they do <laughs> there's no way they haven't watched this movie a hundred times <laughs> yeah um anyway uh it was really good um it's no paris texas no and the other thing that that doesn't get conveyed in that description that i did which there is a fair amount of this being a crime movie but the movie is also like very clearly deeply invested in showing like family scenes of this man and his Mm -hmm. wife and his kid and like um the the sort of strains occurring within the the home and things like that where it's like oh like Vim Vendors, this is what you care about. I know this because I've seen I've seen Paris, Texas. This is you know, we joked in the Paris, Texas episode about how like other movies would start with this premise and then it would become like oh he disappeared because of some crime thing and it would become a crime story. Yeah. No, Paris, Texas is like it has the the beginning trappings of it where you think maybe it could go in that direction. It does not care. It does not care no. about the crime. <laughs> no, this movie does, uh, but. I can already see in the DNA of this movie that, like, I think Vim Vendors is is going to be more interested in moving on from, like, doing this more uh, crime genre thing. Um, But it also is still doing a lot of that stuff really well. So I enjoyed it. Um, Can I share with you a couple things? Because I wanted to look at the cast of this movie because I wanted to remember a little fact. And then I learned a couple small things on the Wikipedia page here that I think you'll find interesting that sort of tie into what you were just saying. Yeah. Wait, so, Nicholas Ray is in this? Ah! Yeah, 
Yes. So this, this is what I was looking up because when you, uh, how long have you been in here? Nothing but trouble. Okay. Well, I'm recording. So. I don't know, but <laughs> don't have him cause trouble in here. <laughs> anyway, anyway, Nicholas yes. Ray is in this. <laughs> so I, I came over to your place as you were watching like the last five minutes of this movie the other day. And I was like, oh, yeah. right. I forgot that like because the movie ends on a shot of Nicholas Ray like looking out over Hamburg and then like walking down some train tracks, I think. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Was, he's the he's the forger. Yeah, so I was like, oh, right, that's a director. I don't remember who that is, but there's a bunch of movies, because, like, Samuel Fuller is in this movie. Um, I was like, there's a bunch of uh, side characters in this movie who are played by directors of other movies. And so then I was I was trying to find that out, and I was like, oh, it's Nicholas Ray. How, how what, a, what a nice little circle, you know? Yeah, we will get to Nicholas Ray later. Um, um, the, the thing I wanted to share with you, which you may be looking at also on this Wikipedia page, is that... Vendors wanted to cast John Cassavetes as Ripley, who declined and suggested Hopper for the part. Um, after casting Hopper, an experienced director, Vendors, uh, after casting Hopper, an experienced director, Vendors decided to cast directors in all the gangster roles, uh, blah, blah, blah. He disliked the title Ripley's Game and shot the film under the title Frame. He also considered Rule Without Exception. He credits Hopper with suggesting the title The American Friend. I was just going to say, the version of this movie, um, where John Cassavetes plays Ripley is, I think, an equally good movie, but a very different movie. Uh, if only because it's not yeah. titled The American Friend. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, the John Cassavetes version of this movie, I would love to see that, but it's different. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah. No, it was great, though. And yeah, S. Uh, you know... Going up the escalator, uh, facing the the bad decision he's going to do, committing to it, and then having to run down the escalator. Um, that's that's what we want. It's it's it is a stairwell scene. There's other stairs in this movie too, but like that's the big one because it's the first time he like kills someone and everything. Um, the the thing the name of this podcast comes from a stairwell scene that's going to kill somebody and then going down the stairs. So I'm going to switch a little thing around in the spreadsheet real quick. So the next uh, on this now reorganized list is um, Star Trek, the 2009 J.J. Abrams film. It fucking sucks ass. <laughs> yeah. This movie's uh, fucking awful. J.J. <laughs> Abrams is not a good director. He's just not. No! He doesn't make good movies. That's the th that's the thing. Okay, okay. So, oh god, I don't have a problem with. So, so what had happened was that Nora is in a Star Trek mood, and she was going to put on a Star Trek movie. We were we were thinking about watching Generations, which in hindsight I wish we had done. <laughs> yeah, but somehow or other we ended up watching. Star Trek 09. And I don't have a problem necessarily 
with maybe the some people would characterize this as like the Star Warsification of Star Trek. You know, yeah. this is this is close. You to being, love Star Wars. I like Star Wars. Um, some would characterize this as like a Star Warsy uh, Trek movie. Even back in two thousand nine, I remember that being the thing. To me, yeah. it sort of had the 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 spirit of like a swashbuckling adventure. You know. It, yeah. That's what it was going for of a, you know, even going as far back as like Errol Flynn movies. Like, that's what it's going for. Right. Yeah. I don't have a problem with that. You can change Star Trek. You can do something new with Star Trek. I'm not so stuffy that I think that every uh, Star Trek movie needs to be like an episode of TNG. Right. The, yeah. The swashbuckling Star Trek is even though I think the trajectory of Star Trek moves away from it, and it, this is not entirely what the original series is, there's a little bit of this, the swashbuckling adventure in the original series. Absolutely. Absolutely. In, like, Captain Kirk. And this is, like, a Captain Kirk movie, you know? Yeah, totally. The problem is not the premise. The premise, other than they did Turbo 9-11 on Vulcan, um... The premise is fine. Whatever. The problem is that the movie sucks. <laughs> yeah. It's, the it's problem not, is that it's bad. <laughs> it's not directed well. Is that J.J. Abrams, can you put the motherfucker on a tripod for six seconds? Stop fucking shaking it. Stop adding in lens flare with CG. What the fuck are you doing? Stop making everything reflect light into the camera lens. It doesn't... Oh, my God. <laughs> this um, movie looks I... fake as shit despite actually being in sets. It yeah. looks stupid and ugly, and I want the camera to stop shaking all the fucking time. <laughs> um, I watched this, like, around when it came out with Emily. Um, not, like, in theaters, but we, we uh, you know, watched it when it hit streaming or whatever. Um, it was bad, and uh, let me just check when when did Two Guns come out? Because for some reason, <laughs> I think about this in relate. So Two Guns was 2013, but maybe if we watched this in 2013. That would have been a few years. Like it's been Trek, out for Star a little Trek bit. Two was that year, so maybe you watched yeah. Star Trek Oh Nine to see Star Trek Into Darkness. Yeah, it may have been both of them were out, and then Emily wanted to watch both of them, and so we we. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think this is how it worked. And then we, uh, I saw Two Guns in theaters, but it's in my head because um, I went to see Two Guns with friend of the show, uh, you know, Swim Fans host, Alex. Um, and both of us had the same take of like, that was not a good movie, but it was competently directed. Mm-hmm. Like the the direction in Two Guns is competent. It's like it's good direction for a very right. bad script starring Mark Wahlberg and Denzel Washington. Now Denzel Washington's fine, but Mark Wahlberg. This, like, this there's only the one, one movie they... that that Marky Mark has been good in beyond the video game make my movie <laughs> make my uh music video Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch. Um, this isn't is this the movie where the guy took your tickets and said enjoy your Luda? No, no, that was Gamer the movie. Oh right, um, but no. Two Guns is the one where before we went to we went to a Panda Express, and my fortune cookie said, "Keep your expectations reasonable." Right. It's I knew the there best was a, I knew there was a story. I knew there was yes. a story you told me. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, um, 
Two Guns, directed by Baltasar Kormakir, who's a um, Icelandic director. Uh, very competently directed. And you watch it and you're like, the the pieces here that he's working with are not good pieces. He He's doing his best. And he's also not like a, a great director. He's not doing like a great... This is, this is not somebody who took, uh, you know took dirt and then compressed the carbon down into a diamond because he's that skilled. It's just competently directed. It's just a totally, if I have to watch like one of these like quote unquote dad movie kind of things where it's just like the movie that dads would like and kind Mm. of the general cultural understanding that of course is all imbued with whiteness and all of these other things. Right. Um, This is a totally fine one. This is better than wild hogs or whatever, you know, it's far better than those. Um, it's a it's a totally competent buddy cop action comedy. Uh the Star Trek movies are like the inverse of that where you're like there's stuff here where you could have done something good with it and you are just a bad director. <laughs> right. This is <coughs> this is incompetently directed. The, so the 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 narrative on Abrams for the last couple of years has been like like Super 8 is a bad movie. <laughs> right? Yeah. And that's like a movie that I think doesn't even have like good pieces to play with. And then you get to like Star Trek Into Darkness, and I feel like culturally we all really turned on J.J. Abrams. Like any hope we had for J.J. Abrams was dashed by Star Trek Into Darkness. No one likes that movie. Mm-hmm. And The Force Awakens, some people like it, some people don't. Um, I think both sides of that are, are in agreement that like that's a fine movie. I, I, some people like it and are like, that's a good movie. It's kind of remaking A New Hope. And there are some people who don't like it and say, that's not a very good movie. It's kind of just a remake of A New Hope. <laughs> yeah. And then Rise of Skywalker obviously has so many problems that go beyond J.J. Abrams. Like, J.J. Abrams yeah. certainly contributed to the problems, but th- there's so much. Like, e- every step in the process failed with Rise of Skywalker. Watching Star Trek 09... Yeah. I could just feel so firmly like all that other stuff, all the other crap stripped away. And just like, this is what JJ Abrams does with like his movie. And he's not beholden to certain expectations. He's not beholden to like, this is just a, his movie. And I, it just laid bare for me that I don't think he knows how to make movies. <laughs> Yeah, I think he's, he's just, just not good bad at, at pointing the camera at things. He's bad um, at telling actors how to act. You know, like I think all these actors are perfectly competent and they're doing like okay jobs in their roles, and it feels like they're probably being badly directed. You know, I don't think yeah. the the problems I had with the acting in this movie lay at the actors' feet. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> Um. Anyway, it's been a while since I've rewatched the Mission Impossible movies. Maybe three is by fluke his directorial debut. Okay, I remember not hating that one, but I didn't even remember that was him. Not that like it's good, but I just have a weird affection for Mission Impossible movies. So, um, next, next up. So I watched um quite on. Um, which is a, for people who are not familiar, 1964 film directed by uh, Masaki Kobayashi, 
Um, probably other than Quite On, most famous for Harakiri, um, which is his movie that comes prior to this. Uh, another like, um, uh, uh, you know the term, and it's not coming to my mind right now. But like, period. Uh, Jedi Geki. Jedi Geki. Yes, thank you. Yeah. Um. Uh, Quite On specifically is adapting uh Lafcadio Hearn's um uh Quite On, which is just an anthology of ghost stories and also um just like it, I I listened to 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 Guillermo del Toro talk about both the book and the movie. He's really smitten with the book because it is half ghost stories and half just Hearn talking about like here's a cool bug I saw in Japan. And I like looked at it and I like, it's got these legs and it, he like draws the bugs and like tells you all these bug facts, apparently. <laughs> anyway, yeah. no bug facts in quite on the, the film, but it is this um, 1964 and it is uh, three hours long and it is um, an anthology movie of four different ghost stories. Um, and um, it's kind of hard to convey what this film is <laughs> because it is the the just the most it is just the most you have to sort of watch it to know what it is thing that I can imagine. It is yeah. like it is very small. Each of the stories is like 45 minutes long. And it is like about like a small cast of characters and very like, you know, more moralistic in the way that like folk tales can be, but also like sometimes you'll like think about it. You're like, what was the moral of that one? And the same way that like, you know, um, sometimes you see like the, the, Disney Little Mermaid and you're like oh there's a moral to that and then you like read the like Brothers Grimm Little Mermaid and you're like I guess children were supposed to learn a lesson from that <laughs> <laughs> um this has sort of that same air and so it's sometimes really small and it's also at times the biggest movie that has ever existed because it is like so fucking slow and the sets are massive they're huge apparently they had to like apparently like kobayashi had to rent out a um airport hangar for like two years to make this movie basically and so they're in the biggest sets in the world and it's like just empty space it's like there's a painting on the there's a background painting of the most beautiful sunset that you could possibly imagine and then there's just this empty forest and it looks incredible and like i i don't know i don't know how to explain it in words you have to like see quite on to understand what i'm saying because sometimes the movie is a poem and sometimes the movie is a painting and sometimes the movie is a movie. And sometimes the movie is like a, a performance of a song. And 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 it like there's so much in it. And there there 
it, you, you, I, I, I can't, I cannot describe to you quite odd in words. Like it just, it just yeah. is beyond me. Um, and I just think that's amazing, you know, that that exists. Um, and like, it's a really fucking slow, boring movie. When I was the the last story in the movie is only about twenty five minutes, and I found myself really bored. And I was like, "Man, there's one more story. I want to be done with this." It's like such a test of endurance. I had to watch it like about. I watched the first two stories one night, and the next two stories the next morning, and it felt like such a test of my endurance for like watching the thing. And so, so that when I finished watching it, I was like, I don't know that I liked that very much. I was so bored and I was so impatient by the end. And then I just like have had a week to sit with it. And I'm like, well, who cares about that? Like the movie, the movie accomplishes so much and, and is so many things. And it can only be all of those things because it is an extremely slow, extremely boring movie. You know? Yeah. And I can't, like, if you hear me talking and you think I'm a crazy person, like, you just kind of have to see quite on to understand what I mean. And maybe you'll watch it and you'll be like, no, the fact that I was really bored through most of it matters to me. And the 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 thing that I took away from the movie won't won't hit you the same. But, like, I I just think that, like, there was a lot of value that I took in, like, being bored. I think there was a lot of value that I took in, like, um quiet and 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 think and thoughtfulness and contemplation um in this movie that you just you couldn't achieve if the movie was a little was two hours and you couldn't achieve it if like they shot this on this on sets that would have been available to them at any studio in japan at the time they they had to have the airplane hangar they had to have the huge sets filled with nothing you know um, yeah. it just, it has to be the way that it is. And I just think it's like amazing that like the, the movie shouldn't work. The movie should not be as impactful as it is. Like you just, I think, uh, Del Toro says this, like, um, like Kobayashi has no business making this movie, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Yeah. No one should be making this movie, but he made it, and it is the way that it is, and it's incredible for it. So, yeah. Yeah. Sorry to just totally just, like, talk over you for, you know, 20 minutes. I just... Sometimes... I, I watched the movie, and I was like, oh, that was pretty good. And then, like, within an hour of just being able to sit with it and let it, like, ruminate on it... um. I was immediately more positive on it. And now I've had like a few days to just like sit with it and, and, and think about it and think about how deeply moved I was by it. Um, yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Um, it also that quite on someone that has the image of, uh, writing with like writing the sutra on the face, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, this is a, uh, like image, a, a tale or something that I think, um, Terry Amashuji likes to return to as well. Uh, and so sometimes it's through like film composition, but in, in Grass Labyrinth, there's actually is a, 
a, a similar sequence of like writing on the body. Um, that, that was another thing was that watching this movie, I was like, watching this movie, I, I don't want to say this, and for people to hear, you have to be familiar with, like, the Japanese cinema that comes after it to, like, really appreciate this movie, because that's obviously not true. This movie was, like, lauded in its day before it could be influential. But seeing this movie, I see so much of Mike in there. I see so much of, um... Uh, Hideo Nakata, the director of Ring, in there. I see so much of Terry Amashuji in there. Um, like, and in different ways. I Like, those three directors, I think, take very different things from this movie, but I can see sometimes literal images. Um, like, there is just stuff from this movie that is ripped off one for one from Ring. And then there is, like, um, <clears throat> or for Ring. And then there is other stuff that's like, oh, yeah, I see how... Um, oh, you've sent me this image, and yeah, the, 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 uh, sutra, like, written on this person's face is just taken in this Shuji movie. <laughs> yeah, and then also there's this part from, from Grass Labyrinth as well. Yeah. Um, um yeah, I just, uh, being the, you know, Japanese cinema nerds that we are, like, and being able to see what an impact this had on the filmmakers who would follow Kobayashi um, was really cool. I want to, I really want to see, um, I really want to see Harakiri now because that is like a movie. That yeah, is, that's a good one. Um, it is shorter. And so it is like, I mean, shorter, it's still over two hours, but um, it, that is a movie that is more known um, in the West. I feel like than quite on is um, the West. I, that's a term I'm trying to excise from my vocabulary. More known in the U.S. than Quiet On is, um, but uh, so I, I'm I'm kind of curious because like Harakiri is the movie I've heard about. I'm kind of curious now to see like, you know, that's his movie that comes before this and is like to hear him tell it from a little bit of an interview I was uh, listening to with him, like, um, uh, like. Harakiri uh, had a lot of stuff in it that he was really proud of, and then he wanted to take it like a step further with um, Quaidon. So I'm kind of curious to see like what is the step backward, you know? Like what is the what is the step that comes before this now? So yeah, yeah. Um, Samurai Rebellion is also a good uh, Jidaigeki that he did. Um, oh, cool. And then he also did the Human Condition film series that I know is highly regarded. Um, yeah, that's like. Um, so the three, um, each of the three, um, human condition movies is over three hours. So I have an yeah. interest in those, but like, oh man, I gotta, I gotta be ready to like be with those movies for a while. Also like the thing to hear him tell it in this interview, um, like human condition, he spent such a long time doing intensely realist filmmaking that like then samurai yeah. rebellion steps away from the realism a little bit and then harakiri steps a little further from the realism and then quite on like fully abandons realism you know yeah um and i don't think he means that as quite on is better than human condition because it doesn't do realism it's just kind of interesting to hear him man i made a lot of really like realist movies i want to do something else now you know <laughs> yeah 
So, <clears throat> yeah. Um. Well, uh, Muppet Christmas Carol, my my two movies here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so just a very easy transition here into Muppet Christmas Carol. Um, put this one on. Uh, we tried to do this last year, um, and our our toddler, I think, was just too young to to really get into it. Um, but now they're they're a little bit more ready for movies. I think uh, mm-hmm. in general, and not just like certain specific movies that can appeal. Um, so, uh, actually, both of these movies are movies that um, we watched uh, all or part of with uh, with our toddler. But um, so, yeah, Muppet Christmas Carol. It's it's a great, it's a classic. Um, I don't remember any stairs in it, but um, yeah, it's in terms of like I'm gonna watch a a, a Christmas movie for kids. You know, yeah, yeah. It's like it's the top for me. There's not many Absolutely. others that are gonna are gonna top this, because um, I think normally I I like a little bit more like uh, pathos in my Christmas movie. I like my Christmas movies to like be a little sad, mm-hmm. um, and a little bit like depressing in a way that I don't associate with. Let's put a, a Christmas movie on with the kids, kind of thing. But mm-hmm. Muppet Christmas Carol, it's still got a little bit of that, even though it's ultimately like jokey and happy and. You know, it's gonna have a happy ending and stuff. Um, you do still get the the like going to the future and all of that. So um, the the ghost of Christmas yet to come. Um, yeah, it's a good movie. Uh, I enjoyed it. I it's been a little bit since I've seen it, so I forgot about some of the the like computer effect stuff that they do with like background compositing and stuff. And like yeah. swirling the backgrounds to do like portals or you know transitions and stuff. Um, I watched that this time last year and was sort of like, huh, what a weird part of this movie that I just totally forgot. Yeah, and like the ghostly effects that they do on some of the the right. Muppets, um, especially the the like wispy white, uh, you know, female specter towards the beginning, um, is, is kind of cool, um, because I. I think like the last, the last time I was like super like I watched it so much as a kid that I I didn't really focus on like the special effects in the way because you're just not thinking about that as a kid in the way that like now I was far more uh, cued in. Um, so uh, don't remember stairs. I think there are like a couple, but. Not not a lot of stare. I don't question marks. This is what we did last time. <laughs> um, and then the other one that we watched is from up on Poppy Hill, um, by Miyazaki Goro. Um, it was a, it was a fine it was a totally fine movie. I gave, I yeah. gave it three stars. It's yeah. the 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 big thing. This is one of the movies where I really feel it. Um, I'm 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 happy for Goro here. It, it was a it was a fun good movie cheering but and clapping Stand sometimes Goro. yeah sometimes i i watch uh ghibli movies and i'm just like man the people who are like ghibli movies are the best fucking movies ever made they just like need to watch some fucking like ozu and mizuguchi or something like just watch some fucking 60s <laughs> japanese movies that are just this yeah it's just there's there's just like a sea of this 
and I know it's not going to be animated, you know, but like, just there's so much, and some you're going to find ones that you're going to like more than this, even though it's not animated. Also, is this the one that had the the big group scene that like apparently took like a year or something to animate, or is that a different I have uh, no idea. Miyazaki movie? I have um, no idea. There was some tweet going around about uh this this crowd scene where they had to hand draw everybody walking in this like shot far away um and it took like a year and a half or something of people animating like six seconds of of footage because of all the people moving and i'm just like just fucking shoot film and just get a crowd of people like jesus fucking christ (laughs) kurosawa (laughs) could do it (laughs) fuck off (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you don't need to like destroy people for for six seconds of a crowd moving just fuck off anyway um let me present to you <laughs> an alternative perspective on from up on poppy hill because i would sure. agree with you this is like a three-star movie this is not a great movie this is a yeah. good movie you gave it a four star on your letterbox i noticed but did i really <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> That's not true. That's impossible. This is a three star movie. That but was maybe you... just you watching uh yeah, being so in I'll the slog. You... Yeah. I'll tell you why I gave this movie four stars on Letterboxd. Because I just watched like seven bad Ghibli movies in a row, and when this one is totally fine, I was like, Oh <gasps> <Fresh air. laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh, weirdly my God. <laughs> weirdly uh nationalist um there's uh there's some there's some vaguely strange politics going on in this movie um in a way that I was not paying close enough attention to fully unpack and I was also watching the the dub and not the subs um which I don't know how much that it, it affects things um but yeah <laughs> Uh, 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 totally. It's very funny because, uh, I was paying more attention to it than, uh, Emily was. And so Emily was like, what is the plot of this movie? Uh, as we were like two thirds of the way in. The plot um, of the movie is that the two kids fall, fall in love with each other. That's the whole Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, so there's this building that like the clubs are in, but it's all run down. So they're going to demolish it and they're fixing it up. Uh, and also these two kids fell in love, but they just found out that they're siblings. So they're, they're not going to do anything about it. Uh, and then like literally the next scene was them finding out that they're not siblings. And then they, right. but then it's still maybe kind of in contention. And so then they have to like run, uh, to get to the the boat by four p.m. so that they can uh get confirmed for sure we can fuck. <laughs> I, I forgot this is the movie with the really really cute romance from the where oh what's the twist oh it's that they're maybe brother and sister the whole time. <laughs> but it's forgot. fine. They're not. They're not. They're not. It's they're fine. Not. They're it's not. Fine. They're not. It's fine. It's fine. But they can they fuck. They it's are not for a minute. <laughs> yeah. Uh. It's, yeah. Because it's like uh. They thought that it was like that he was her brother who was uh, put up for adoption because they didn't they couldn't like take care of two kids. Um, Mm -hmm. But then the mom's like, no, we like your dad agreed to to adopt this kid um, without consulting me. And I was like, we literally don't have the money or like means to feed another kid. We need to find somebody else. Uh, And so that's how the other person adopted from us. Um and then she's like, and you're positive that dad didn't cheat on you, basically. <laughs> um, oh and then God. she's like, I don't think so. But then she she finds uh, someone who can confirm the actual dad. But anyway. Um, 
Yeah, that's the plot of from up on Poppy Hill. Stupid. <laughs> it was ninety minutes. It was fine. Um, I like that movie. I was I just did, watching I... it, being like, "Oh man, any of those Setsuko Hara movies? That'd be I could just watch any man. of those right now. <laughs> <laughs> just any of the, just pick a random one, put it on. Let's go. <laughs> um, it's fine though." Uh, S though the the family the stair family home stairs get a lot of emphasis and there's like a a big moment where she's like uh, all hesitant and has to walk down the stairs and stuff. It's a good scene. Um, also, there's all the stairs in the the building that they're remodeled or that they're like fixing up so it won't get demolished. Um, and there's like the guy walking up it and seeing everything and deciding not to demolish it at the end. So, um, yeah. S, I guess. S. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm already ready to, to bump it down to an A+, plus, but we'll, we'll leave it as an S and move on. Talk about Touch of Evil. Talk about <laughs> You're right. So, okay. So, um, Wintertime really rolled into Chicago in the last couple weeks. Oh, yeah. Um, like and fucking cold. It's fucking cold. And when I think of winter, I think of noir movies. Um, it's the return of Autumn watches a weird amount of noir movies every week on stairwells. If you really enjoyed uh, last January, me just being like, yeah, I watched like three noir movies last week. <laughs> it, it's time for that again. And if you if you hated that part of the podcast, don't worry, it'll warm up again and I'll stop watching noir movies. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I was literally just like, it's kind of cold outside. I want to watch Touch of Evil. That was literally the whole thought process. <laughs> I'd never seen this movie. Um, it's pretty good. You know about this shit? Yeah. You know about this Orson Welles guy? Never heard of him. <laughs> you know about this universally oh. beloved classic, Touch of Evil? Turns oh. out it's pretty good. Uh, the voice of Optimus Prime. Yeah, the uh, you might be familiar with him from his... Uh, he did a really famous ad campaign in the 80s for uh, some champagne. Never heard of it. Uh, the French champagne. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, tell me about Touch of Evil. Um, we're, we're, doing, we're doing this dumb bit. Just... <laughs> <laughs> uh, dude, I don't know. It's Touch of Evil. When yeah. people... Some people like to be contrarians. Uh, uh, no, 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 no. Hmm. Let me let me reverse what I just said. I am a big fan of Citizen Kane. If I was going to make a sight and sound top ten list, I don't know that Citizen Kane would make it, but I'd think about it. I'd really think it would be on that list for a little bit, and I maybe would cut it to put Godzilla: Final Wars on there. But you know, um, yeah. Citizen Kane is one of the best fucking movies ever made. And for a long time, I thought that when people said, oh, Touch of Evil is actually my favorite Orson Welles movie, that they were being contrarian somehow, that they wanted to pick a slightly lesser movie as their favorite Orson Welles. Yeah. Oh, how wrong I was. <laughs> yeah. I don't think I like this movie as much as I like Citizen Kane, but like, I get it. Like, I understand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, this movie has a lot of weird problems, like, 
Charlton Heston brown face and marijuana turns you into a, a psycho killer drug addict and um, all sorts of weird, weird stuff in this movie. <laughs> but yeah. Who cares? It's great. <laughs> it's incredible. They do. The, the, You've no doubt heard about the really cool, like, long take at the very beginning of the movie where it, like, you know, follows them and then there's the car bomb and everything. Um, And, like, I saw that in a film class once. Um, But really, like, sitting down and watching the movie this time, um, like, from that very first, like, long take of the... The whole movie feels like a reflection of that long take because it is just, like, non-stop twists and turns there's not a moment to breathe in this movie as there's always just like something else is gonna happen you know um and and the the tension that that first shot establishes um i think they carry through the whole movie and it's really impressive that they managed to pull it off in the way that they did you know um yeah it just it feels like a tightrope act that shouldn't work, but it does because Orson Welles is like, you know, the best director. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. Uh. Yeah. Um. Uh. I don't know what else to say about it. I. Uh, I guess I kind of sort of went in skeptical of this movie because of its reputation, and skeptical of this movie because people say. It, there are a lot of people who say it's the best noir movie, you know, and like, don't qualify that in any way. Don't um, just say it's the best noir movie. And like, I don't agree, but like, I get it, you know, um, I get it. I understand why, why people love this movie the way they do. And it, it absolutely, if I was going to make a list of the top five noir movies, I think this would be like on it, you know, <laughs> I yeah. think I probably like the third man better, but like we're splitting hairs here. Um, yeah. <clears throat> um. Uh, you you mentioning the the blackface in this movie reminded me that I did watch like half of Black Narcissus. Um. Oh yeah, talk about that for a second. Yeah. So this was me being like, oh, I want to watch some movies. Um. And being like, oh, I, like I've heard good things. I was basically just looking on on Criterion, trying to find something, and I was like, you know, I know that uh, Autumn enjoyed this movie. I've I've heard some good things, and I put it on. Um, and I think like if I was like, f- this is me trying to get back into watching movies. And I think if I was just like regularly watching movies, and I just randomly put this on, and I just watched like two other great movies that week, um, I would have just kept going. Uh, but just like. You know, there there's like blackface or brown face going on in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I, there's stuff where I think it's trying to be critical of some of the racism, but there's also just like a lot of racism happening, and also in a way where uh, a movie from 1940 or something. Um, I'm not right. like fully. Uh, I don't have the full faith that it's going to like actually say anything that's gonna to. Uh, you know, make up for the way that it is just also kind of being racist and talking about these things. Um, and so even though it was very pretty, I was just like, I, 
either I'm just like committing to this uh, or I'm putting something else on and you are like, yeah, put something else on that you're more excited about. Uh, I At that point, I want to download the, the movie that we're going to talk about after you talk about your next movie. Um, but while that was downloading, I then watched, uh, the American friend. Um, right, right. So, yeah. uh, which I think was a much better, like, ah, oh, yeah, I'm back. I'm back into watching movies. Uh, after, yeah, totally. after not really having the time to do it. So I still don't have a ton of time to do it, but I'm getting I, back into it. I really, really, really love black narcissus, but you were like kind of complaining to me and like your, your heart wasn't in it. I was like, just turn it off. You and me can like watch this movie together sometime and maybe like having another person there. I like the movie's really racist, you know? Um yeah. I think the movie is thinking about race, thinking about how the British Empire interfaces with uh race. Um uh you know, critical of those things. Um, aware that like the, the British Empire is like evil. Yeah, I think the movie still replicates a lot of the racism that it's criticizing, you know, and I don't I don't think there's a way around that. And I think that, like, for anyone out there, if if you hear me say that and you're like, well, I'm not interested in watching Black Narcissus anymore. I'm like, yeah, all right. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, I found a lot in it to love despite those things. But like, I get it, you know? Yeah. <sighs> um. Continuing with the the winter noir vibes, um, I also, from the Criterion channel, was just browsing their noir stuff. Um, they very helpfully recently put up just, like, a list of genres, and noir is one of them, and so... Because it used to be I would, like, have to flip back and forth between, like, their American noir collections and their Japanese noir collections. Now it's all just under one little category, and I, I get to scroll to my heart's content. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so I saw this movie, The Breaking Point, um, it is, and I was like, oh, directed by Michael Curtiz, the director of Robin Hood and um, <clears throat> Casablanca. Oh, I love both yeah. those movies. I'll put this on. I didn't really know anything. I didn't know a fucking thing about it before I started watching it. Um, it's amazing. It's great. It's fucking really fucking good. It's really, 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 really fucking good. <laughs> um, the the breaking point is an adaptation of Ernest Hemingway's novel To Have and Have Not. Um, and it is about this fisherman who is down on his luck and he's got his wife and his two kids and it's 1950 so he's like a war veteran who like you know for a few years there i had a lot of direction to my life and now i've like come back home and i can't really like figure out what i'm doing i'm trying to like make it as a fisherman but uh there's just no money in it and i'm trying to raise these kids but i'm kind of too proud to try and do anything else his wife is like his wife's father owns a farm, and his his wife is like, listen, my dad can get you a job on the farm. You know, we can feed our kids. And he's like, oh, but I, I don't want to give up on my dreams, you know? Um, And so, because it's a movie from 1950, and it's like, it's definitely, I would say this is definitely a noir movie, right? Yeah. But I think, culturally, some people hear noir, and they think, detective movie they think touch of evil they think um like 
shadowy and and people smoking cigarettes all the time and all this sort of stuff. And it it's not that. What it is is it's like a post-war black and white drama thriller um about like um an American veteran in a morally compromised situation, you know, which is like yeah. you know, noir wasn't a thing that people thought of in the 40s and 50s in the US. It was a it was a thing sort of retroactively applied by by French critics in the late 50s, you know. Yeah. And so I think th- those those critics who who theorized noir at that place in time would have absolutely called the breaking would have absolutely called breaking point a noir film and I absolutely would call it that but I don't want people to hear that and get a certain vision of what this movie is um because it doesn't quite fit like how some people would describe noir um <clears throat> but yeah it's 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 I guess it's closer to like um like an Arthur Miller play or like an Ilya Kazan drama um yeah like kind of social realist like um that sort of thing um and it's like i can't really tell you why it's great because like i i like this genre a lot i like Ilya kazan movies and i like noir movies um and the actors are really good and like i can't just i can't explain to you Oh well, John Garfield just turns in one of the most iconic performances of American cinema in this movie. You just kind of have to see it, and you you have to arrive at yourself. Oh wow, John Garfield in that movie! Holy shit! Real real yeah. shame about like everything that happened to him after this movie. Um, for for people who are not familiar, because I certainly wasn't before I saw this movie. John Garfield was a, a an immensely influential method actor of stage and screen of the forties. Um, you know. James Dean and Marlon Brando and Monty Cliff were huge fans of his um, when they were young. And then he gets black blacklisted during the like um, HUAC, all that sort of stuff, McCarthyism, um, and dies two years after this movie comes out because um, like a, a, like a, a heart attack at age 39 because he was just so like you know, wrecked by the sort of interrogations of the HUAC. So, um, yeah, real shame, everything that happened to him. Um, but this movie's just really fucking good. Um, he's like, he's such purposefully. So he's like everything that the American man should want to be in 1950. You know, it, it almost feels it does feel propagandistic about like he has a dream and he has his wife and two kids. He has his nuclear family. And, um, there's a woman in this movie, Patricia Neal, who's playing the femme fatale, who basically she gets involved with this crime that he's doing. And from the moment she meets him, she's like, Hey, you want to fuck? Hey, I know you're married, but like, do you want to fuck? Like, Hey, you're really hot. Do you want to fuck? And he's like, no, I love my wife. And she's like, I, how much do you really love your wife, though? Do you want to fuck? And he's like, no, I, I, I love my wife. And she's like, eh, but do you want to fuck? And he's like, legitimately, like, loves his wife and remains faithful to her through the whole movie. Um, you know, <laughs> like, 
Yeah. Um, he just, he's attracted to her. It's clear that he's attracted to her, but he's like, I have a wife and children and I can't fuck that up, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, and, 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 you know, he, he gets pushed to his breaking point and goes along with these crimes that he know he shouldn't be doing. And ultimately, like, he's the one that, like, he takes a stand and he's like, no, I will not participate in these crimes. And, like, you know, saves the day um, and, and pays a price for it. You can watch the movie to find out more about that. <laughs> um, yeah. He is he is so perfect. But because he's so perfect and because he's so he has so much trouble being perfect, it just really sells the whole movie. The whole the whole movie pivots on his performance in that um in that role and he's so good in it. He's just incredible. Yeah. Um I'm trying to think of anything else I have to say about it. Patricia Neal is gorgeous in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> She's just really hot. That's my thought. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh speaking of like noirish movies um where the the main actress main uh actress is very hot in it <laughs> in a lonely place yeah in a lonely place uh Directed also the main Ray. actor is really hot in this <laughs> man uh, but also in a we'll get into it um they don't make them like they used to <laughs> yeah specifically <laughs> specifically i so i downloaded this because this is this is like I think this is my favorite Humphrey Bogart movie. Um, I'm pretty sure of that. Um, and I, it's incredible. Uh, it's a it's a movie that I've seen a, a couple times. Um, and every time that I see it, it like like I think of it and I'm like, eh, like I remember it's this like noir thing, and you know. And every time I see it, it's like better than I remembered it. And in my head, it's a five star movie. <laughs> And every time I see it, I'm like, no, that was better than my memory of it is. Uh, so, <laughs> so um, yeah, part of it was like, man, uh, me watching uh, Black Narcissus being like, if I want to like watch an old movie that's going to make me excited about movies again, I need to watch In a Lonely Place. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I watched this. I was watching it. And then you were like, Humphrey Bogart, you say? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, will, I will watch it too um yeah. i well, feel I mean, like i just is... watched a michael curtis movie i had to watch yeah. a humphrey bogart movie next week i'll be back with an ingrid bergman movie <laughs> <laughs> um god this movie's this movie's incredible um it's really good it's really I, fucking good since we both watched this and also like part of what i want part of what i want to talk about is the ending um, I guess I will just make a note here that we might be a little bit more spoilery than we sometimes are when we discuss stuff. Yeah, well, and you know, I, I, I told everybody the end of um, As Tears Go By. We don't always care about spoilers on this podcast, but the poster for this movie is the Bogart thriller with the surprise finish, and I was like, okay, sure. And then I saw the ending of the movie, and I was like, oh man, what a surprise finish. Yeah. <laughs> The ending of this movie, one, really caught me off guard, and two, may, uh, elevates the whole movie, I think. The whole yes. movie is really good, but the ending is just, like, really something else. Really, I think, just, like, I thought the movie was just going to end how these movies end, and yeah. it, it takes a real twist. And so, I guess, 
we, know, we will get there. We will get to the twist. We will yeah. we'll talk about it because I think it's important. I think it's why this is like why I love this movie so much. Um, so I'm going to I'm going to mark and I'll look again in a few minutes and I'll tell, you know, maybe I'll edit in like, but let's just say skip ahead five minutes, listeners. Just skip ahead five minutes. Yeah. Um, you want me to summarize this or do you want to? I've seen you it go. multiple you times. So. Okay. Uh, so Humphrey Bogart plays uh, Dixon Dix Steele. Uh, which is funny because there are moments later on where uh, Laurel is going to talk about how much she loves dicks. Uh, <laughs> um, but, Me too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, he, he's a Hollywood screenwriter. Um, he's kind of got a chip on his shoulder, uh, doesn't want to just do the, the like... Uh, you know, stuff that's going to fill seats and sell popcorn um, and uh, has this confrontation uh, at the beginning. And it's kind of, you know, uh, has this moment of explosive uh, violence and anger. Uh, but then it goes uh, and there's this uh, girl who works at his office um, named Mildred Atkinson. And she's reading this book that he was supposed to uh, read through and potentially adapt into a movie. Um, and uh, she's almost done with it. So she's like, can I finish it? And he's like, sure. Uh, but you then I'm too tired to read it. So you need to come over to my place and explain the plot. Um, and Clearly he's just trying to fuck her. Yeah. Yeah. He's kind of uh, trying to put the moves on her a little bit uh, throughout the, the night. Um and she's explaining the plot and there's this part where the, you know, main character, the the woman in the book is like screaming, help me, help me. And so she's really getting into the story because she loved it, even though he clearly uh, knows that this is a bad story and he's not going to use it. Um, so she's shouting, help me, help me. Uh, when this happens, if you've seen a movie like this, you're like, oh, nothing's going to nothing's going to good going <laughs> to uh, come from a, a woman screaming, help me, help me. Um, yeah. But anyway, uh, he then gives her money, uh, you know, even though he said he would drive her home, he just gives her money to get a cab. Um, and when she leaves, uh, there's this new tenant who just moved in, Laurel Gray, who sees her exiting. Uh, this will be important because she becomes his alibi, uh, because Mildred ends up murdered. Um, and so the next day he gets, it's like 4am he gets brought in for questioning. Uh, he's just like very, um, in a Humphrey Bogart charming way, he's like very rude and, uh, kind of cracking jokes uh, around being told that a woman was murdered. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they just, let him they go. They just haven't but, seen Humphrey Bogart movies. They just don't know yeah. that he's like this all the time. Well, so the, and the, the detective, uh, was like, in the army with him during the war uh and humphrey bogart was the 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 like superior who's the captain or whatever um so anyway uh he kind of believes uh that this detective believes humphrey bogart uh dixon steel um that he's innocent uh because they have that like pre-existing thing yeah it's such a it's such a funny name um (laughs) (coughs) anyway um in the course of this uh he ends up since laurel uh who who saw her leaving his service alibi um they end up talking and uh they have like immediate uh romantic tension um he goes to kiss her when he when she says that like 
she likes his face. Uh, but then she's like, that doesn't mean I want to kiss it. You know, she's like able to kind of hold her own in that moment. Um, but they end up falling in love and then she's helping him as like the typist basically for, for the screenplay he's working on, um, while stuff is getting investigated. Um, and then we kind of get like scenes of their life together, uh, as this is going on while stuff's getting investigated, uh, Humphrey Bogart is convinced that it's the, the boyfriend who killed, um, the, the girl. Uh, but then also people are warning, uh, Laurel of like, here's this like previous relationship he had where she got all beaten up, but then it seemed to have gotten covered over or something. Um, he, he is starting to have these like explosive outbursts. Um, so, uh, you know, there's a, a scene in the car where he's like driving erratically and then it's like basically going to b- beat the other driver to death until she like shouts out to stop. Um, and so you're getting like this. Uh, and I mm-hmm. think uh, Humphrey Bo- Bogart is able to like ride this line between like um, kind of like charmingly a jackass and then like genuinely frightening uh, really yeah. well where he will just like uh teeter between those two so often uh but in he's a way where yeah he he's <clears throat> like this movie works in part because of him uh but you can also like because of that you can see how someone would fall for this guy um mm-hmm. even as he then has these moments of like explosive outbursts um what's also interesting is like his uh like producer or whatever mel uh is this other guy who I think like produces some of the scripts. Um, he is like, Oh, you just got to understand. He's like this. You gotta, you know, you gotta deal with the good and the bad. Um, I think this is also part of what's like happening in this movie is the way that a lot of people are enabling like his abusive behaviors. Um, Mm -hmm. but she ends up being like, I don't actually want to marry this man. Um, I'm, I'm kind of terrified of him. Um, and it wants to get out of the relationship. Um, and, uh, then when he, uh, finds out that she like got a, a plane ticket to New York, um, she's not wearing the ring that, uh, he gave her. He's like basically like going to strangle her or, or beat her or something. Um, and then the phone rings and it's the detective saying that the, the boyfriend, um, you know, uh, confessed to the murder. Um, mm-hmm. and so it wasn't Dixon Steele. Uh, but and this is what I think is genius about this movie, or it's like great about this movie. Why why it's one of my favorites is that so many of these movies would end with either Humphrey Bogart is confirmed as the killer, um, and it's it's not the phone rings, it's the detective comes in because they're going to take him in and then saves the the woman from him, you know, and then he gets right. taken away, you know, uh, or or. They throw or the each other. Comes. They yeah. throw themselves into each other's arms. Oh, honey, I'm so I'm so sorry about what I did. Oh, I can't believe I thought you were the killer. And then they kiss and oh, make up, uh, and it's gonna be yeah happy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but what this movie is is she gets the phone call and she's like, "If you'd called yesterday, that would have been great. That would have changed everything." Um, now I know that he's a man who's capable of like strangling me. Uh, yeah. I, you know, our relationship is over. Like, it's just, it doesn't matter whether or not he's the murderer. Uh, I, he's abusive. And like, that is enough for me to not want to be with him. Um, and so, yeah, that's part of what, like, God. just the, the, how, how like, uh, brutally honest it is about that. 
um, is what, like, the first time I saw it, it, it bowled me over. Um, and now I know that ending, but I'm still, like, amazed by the acting and stuff throughout it. Um, like, fully knowing how this ends, how much I get, like, there are moments early on where I'm like, man, this guy's so charming. Like, I love Humphrey Bogart. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> the, the movie, like, has to pivot on, like, it's load-bearing that, like, you immediately understand that Dixon Steele is a scumbag and that also you are charmed by him. That all, like, yeah. that you can see the whole thing from the word go, you know? Yeah. That in the in the very first scene, he sees this woman, uh, so, so he's driving his car and someone pulls up alongside him and it's a it's a man driving. He's kind of like an older, like a middle aged man. And then this like young like Hollywood actress, and she's like Dixon Steele, you wrote my last movie. And he like starts hitting on her, and the the guy gets mad, like stop hitting on my wife. He's like, and he's like, you want to fight right here? I'll fucking fight you in the street. And you, like that's the whole movie in one scene. <laughs> you <know>? Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah, the bartender being like, you know, take it outside, you know. Like the, take it the, outside next time. Yeah, you know, in a Dixon way where Steele's you just, had a hundred fights in here. Yep. Yeah. You know, <laughs> just the way he delivers that line. Outside. Yeah. Um. And um, yet, after that, he's while he's cracking jokes about a woman who died after being in his apartment. You're like, man, Humphrey Bogart. He's so charming. <laughs> he's got, he's like in the detective's office, right? And like. The detectives call in um, Laurel, and like Humphrey Bogart is on is on a couch behind her. He's got like his feet up on the furniture, which is genuinely yeah. to me like the most disgusting thing in here. It's not the feet being on the furniture; it's the, it's shoes, the shoes being on the furniture. Yeah, like, feet go on furniture. I don't know. Live your fucking life, but shoes on furniture bothers me. And in that in that moment, I'm like. Oh, he's so charming. Oh, he's such a sweetie. And like in that scene, he's like, you know, if I if I had killed her, here's how I would have done it. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, he's so genuinely sweet with her as well in so many of uh-huh. these scenes. Uh, in a way that again, it just it feels true to like how abuse works. That like yes. often he is going to be very sweet and loving with her. Um that's that's like part of how the cycle works so um yeah it's just like the the depiction of it throughout this it it is amazing and also again it like surprises me for something from 1950 uh in a way where i just expect it to be i expect it to be more willing to paper this stuff over than it actually is Um, yeah just given the time and the way that these kinds of movies go Mm mm-hmm one of the um one of the best scenes in the movie to me and i was joking with you over text about this scene but but um he comes to her apartment and um she's in bed and he's like oh i'll make breakfast this man slices a single grapefruit does it wrong and says to himself i made breakfast yeah unbends the grapefruit <laughs> knife cuz he doesn't know what it is unbends the grapefruit spoon <laughs> and thinks it's a bent yes yeah. <laughs> and as he's while he's cutting the grapefruit, you get a long take of him on one side of the kitchen, her on the other. <clears throat> and she's like 
in this moment, she's like wondering if he's the killer and she's like sort of creating a distance between between the two of them. Um, but he's talking about and I like that this movie because he's a screenwriter. I like that this movie sometimes m- does the sort of meta thing, but oftentimes doesn't, you know, or, or yeah. is very like straight faced about it, not winking, really. So he's talking about this like scene that he wrote in the movie that's really romantic and she's like she's like oh i really liked that scene and he's like well you know the thing about a good romance scene is it has to be about something else you you can't just have the two characters say they love love each other you have to see it somehow and he's like look i'm making you breakfast anybody watching this scene right now could see how in love we are yeah you kind of sleepy sitting over there in your nightgown me here making breakfast uh yeah and you and you understand from his point of view in this moment how he sees it that way, right? Yeah. <clears throat> and there's been a dozen other scenes prior to this where we see the two of them in love and it's like, yeah, it's 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 that scene that he's talking about fully, you know? But this scene now, she's creating that distance. Um, and he sees her as like sleepy and she sees herself as like on guard you know yeah um like i say like the camera is just like over um on one wall of the set and it's just like a one long take as he spends forever cutting this grapefruit doing a once again must stress this a terrible job cutting yeah his poor job (laughs) terrible he is mangling this grapefruit (laughs) yeah He's just because, like, also with the little like grapefruit knife thing, you're supposed to like cut out the 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 segments. You know, you're supposed to sort of cut around the like uh, pith. He's just kind of yeah. like sawing the whole thing out. <laughs> yeah, I don't really know what he's going for. Is he like? I, I I'm like I was like intently watching. Like, what does he think the sliced grapefruit is supposed to look like? Yeah, because this is not it. And and like earlier in the movie. <laughs> Earlier in the movie, she like makes him eggs and pancakes and grapefruit and bacon. This man sliced a single grapefruit and says, I did it. I made breakfast. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, But also, I mean, not not this scene. And I I think it's also part of like it knows how to play this scene. Yeah. but like also in a way that's surprising for a, a Hollywood movie from 1950. Uh this movie feels like genuinely sexual. Yes. Without like depicting sex, but like the way that stuff is acted, like this movie is horny in a way that uh is hard to like you again, like you just have to see it to understand the way that this movie is horny. Uh um, It's a, it's not like I, I feel like now in 2022, there is like a colloquial connotation of horny as like an almost comedic thing. Like we think of people being horny on Maine. Yeah. This is just like, this is like erotic, you know, yes. is the word that I would go for. Yeah. <clears throat> because, and I, we both mean the same thing. I just think erotic maybe like gets across the, the colloquial meaning a little better, maybe. Yeah. Um, even like I forget the exact line, but there's like this part where she just kind of like whispers in like this breathy voice of like, um, I don't want anyone but you. Uh, yeah. And just like the way she says it is just like dripping with this this energy. Um, well, in the outfit she's wearing in that just 
Because she's got, it's it's an outfit that, like, would not be risque in any way now. Probably was not, like, that risque at the time. But it's, like, so she's got, like, this black dress and then, like, a veiled, um, like, veils for sleeves, basically, right? And so you see yeah. her whole, like, arms and shoulders and, like, there's not, there's not any, like, cleavage. You don't, like, <laughs> like... Yeah. Everything is everything that's supposed to be covered is covered, but it's just it, it's a really nice outfit. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's just like a little it's a little sexier than like a lot of other like femme fatale types of this time and place would be wearing, you know? Yeah. Um, but also like this movie is also a, a masterclass of uh, sometimes it is sexier to not show and to just like uh make the person aware of you know mm-hmm. you you don't you don't show the skin but you wear the outfit that is going to make someone think about the skin that is underneath <laughs> yes and that is yes. like that is more erotic than just like being naked sometimes <laughs> yes absolutely uh that's also going on in this movie um i get electric is a good way of describing a lot of this movie um, there's can we talk about um how uh she has um her massage therapist who she's just known since way back and just like the intense lesbian energy radiating from the yeah. massage therapist? Yeah. <laughs> the massage therapist be like, you always get these men and you always come running back to me. And the massage therapist is like 20 years older than her, but like you could just the massage therapist has like I mean, he's Butch also, like, lesbian. at least 20 years older than <laughs> Yes. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah, uh, Gloria, um... I, Gloria I always, Graham. Graham. I always feel like the E throws me. I always feel like it should be saying something else. Um, yeah. Well, I said it funny, and then I'm like, wait, that's my last name. Why am I saying it funny? <laughs> well, just you don't have the e, e, though. I yeah, don't have the E. e. e just the throws me, it just throws me off. Um, anyway, I'm looking when she was born and comparing, uh, 23 <laughs> Humphrey Bogart. Let's just, uh, Ooh, buddy, 1899. Yeah. So 24 years older. Yeah. Uh, in this movie. Yeah. I mean, how much older is he than like uh, the, the thing about this movie is that one, that's like what the text of the movie is, is that he's like way older than her and he yeah. should know better. And, but two, the the sort of like inner text or subtext of this movie is that that was also an element to Casablanca. Casablanca is also about how Humphrey Bogart is way older than Ingrid Bergman, and um, he was only like ten or fifteen years older than her. You know, yeah. Um, uh, uh, the Humphrey Bogart of this movie has now been doing this for ten years, and obviously, like, it's not the same character. Like, this is not Rick in any way, but yeah. like. It's playing off the sort of star persona of Humphrey Bogart. And in 1950, you've now seen him, like, getting with women younger than him on screen for 10 years. You know? Yeah. Um, uh, the African Queen, the only movie that <laughs> where he's with a woman who's, like, of his own age bracket. <laughs> <laughs> Like he he's significantly older, I think, than Lauren Bacall is, right? I don't know that off the so. top of my head, but I I'm thinking yeah. that's true. 
Uh, I just clicked on the Humphrey Bogart because I, I was going to try and make this, uh, you know, find He's her that way. 25 years older than her. Yeah. Uh, 44-year-old Bogart and 19-year-old Lauren Bacall fell in love during the filming of To Have and Have Not. Which, um, by the way, Breaking Point is the second adaptation of the same novel. Because yeah. supposedly To Have and Have Not did not... um was not a very faithful adaptation. And so like somebody was like, Hey, we should actually try it. That was a really good book. We should actually try to make like a movie of that book this time. <laughs> the American queen is the next year. I'm, I don't, I'm not familiar with the, American or not queen. the, uh, the African queen is the next year. 1951. What? He ages 10 years between those two movies. I know. I mean, some of it is just the, the change from black and white to color. And some of it is the cancer. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um. God. But yeah, no, this, this movie is incredible. So good. Um, if people this haven't so seen good. it, I highly recommend. Even with the spoiler, if you heard the spoiler, still go seek it out. Um. I just I adore it, this movie. The spoiler is part of it, but it's also just like. Like the 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 thing that happens is part of it, but saying the thing that happens doesn't convey like the loneliness that you feel in that last shot as he leaves her apartment, you know? Yeah. Or or the the heartbreak that she is able to convey in her final line, and the the line itself I think is a little corny. Um, yeah. But like the tears that she's crying feel genuine feel yeah. like from the heart in that moment um, her acting is better than the line that she has yeah. and i think there are lots of people who uh prize the line because they don't recognize that they think that the line is great and it's the way that she delivers it the way that she acts um i, I think the film part <laughs> that that supports the line yeah i think an important part of this movie to me is that like because he's a he's a, he's a screenwriter, right? Yeah, I don't think that he's like a particular. It doesn't seem to me like he's a particularly great screenwriter. He seems like a good one. Yeah, but I feel like he probably like this movie seems aware of the fact that like a script is one aspect of the movie, but like the actors and the sets and the camera are what bring the movie to life. You know? Yeah, and so, and so. Like, cause, cause the line that she says there, they rehearse earlier in the movie because it's from the movie that he's writing. And so you hear, you, this is like your third time hearing that line and you've heard it delivered a little differently each time. Um, the reason that the line hits so hard in that moment is not because of the words on the page, but because of everything else bringing those words to life, you know? Yeah. Um, also, we can't convey how great and funny Humphrey Bogart is delivering some of the, the jokes throughout this, some of the little, uh, witty bits that, um, I think you <laughs> tweeted something about like Humphrey Bogart says lines in this that are like things that you would see in like a Marvel movie now, but like none of them can have the charm. Like yeah. <laughs> no guy named Chris is able to deliver the line like this. <laughs> the, the one I was thinking about was um he meets the boyfriend who killed the girl from the start of the movie right yeah 
and and he says to him oh if i was a detective i could have pinned this case on you a long time ago you know and he blah 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 and the the boyfriend says to him that's a great imagination it must be um you must have gotten it from being a screenwriter and he puts his hand out and bogart grabs his hand shakes his hand and says that's quite a grip it must be from counting money and (laughs) the line is not that funny the joke is not that funny but, but the I way he delivers up. it. <laughs> because Humphrey Bogart is really funny. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> uh, he's a movie star in the way that we don't have anymore. <laughs> There's never been a movie star like Humphrey Bogart, to be fair. Yeah. <laughs> he is movie star. Yeah. When we say movie star, we mean Humphrey Bogart. <laughs> <laughs> George Clooney is a pale imitation. <laughs> That's true. And he's great. He's great. He's not, he's not just an imitation. That's but but <laughs> he does live in the shadow of Humphrey Bogart. Um, uh, but we all do. Yeah. So. Uh, stairs. How are we feeling on stairs in this movie? So we do have some stairs, especially there's the stairs that go up into um her apartment. Uh, but they're not like there. There's no like big stairwell scene. Hmm. I feel like you'd be yeah. like a C. I feel like a C. Oh, I should say I didn't say for Touch of Evil, um, or the Breaking Point. Touch of Evil, I put question marks because I am certain, certain in my heart that there were S rank stairs, but I'll be goddamned if I can remember what they were. But like, yeah. if there were stairs in this movie, they were S rank. You know? Yeah. I remember seeing some black and white stairs in the last week or two that i was like oh my god those stairs and they must have been from touch of evil but i can't remember what it was right now um and then the breaking point i did a b because i typed that in like two days ago three days ago and i watched the movie i don't remember what they were i'm sorry <laughs> yeah so yeah in a lonely place see there's some nice stairs you don't really get a good look at them and nothing really happens on them yeah um once again, just looking at the S for from up on Poppy Hill and the C for in a lonely place, a uh, reminder that the letter grades are for the stairs and not the quality of the movie itself. <laughs> Listen, Persona is the best movie I watched out of all the movies we've talked about. And yeah. we've talked about some fucking heavy hitters. Like Hiroshima Matamore, pretty d- fucking close. Persona is better than Hiroshima Matamore. Persona yeah. got an F. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. Anyway, uh, Die Hard. <laughs> oh right. <laughs> Merry Christmas if you celebrate. Uh, Happy Yule. Or, what are you putting? Are you putting this out tomorrow or like tonight or something? I'd really, really like to put it out tonight. I close tomorrow, and so I, I close tomorrow, but I have to wake up and do the star wars holiday special so hopefully it will be up tonight or tomorrow morning but there's a chance it's not up till like thursday (laughs) okay (laughs) well uh if you're listening to this um and it's wednesday the 21st or later uh up to the, the new year uh happy yule yeah yeah um we watched die hard we watched Die Hard. 
It's like um, half of a Christmas movie. This is where I've landed on it, is that half of it is a Christmas movie and the other half is not. <laughs> but there is like fair. half Christmas movie here. That's fair. Yeah. So you had not seen this movie before. No. Which is why we watched it. Mm-hmm. This is one of my favorite movies ever. Um, um, I've seen this movie, I don't know how many times. I love Die Hard. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how much I could podcast about Die Hard. It's Die Hard. <laughs> uh it's no Die Hard with a Vengeance. <laughs> Fuck off. <laughs> Shut up. It's this is not way better than Die Hard 3. Uh, no, it's not. <laughs> Die Hard 3 is so much better. <laughs> Die Hard 3 is fucking great. The Fuck the off. whole the whole premise of like I'm doing your I'm doing my little riddles. Uh, to confound you, <laughs> Bruce Willis, uh, John McClane, uh, and it's all just a misdirect to, to do the heist. Uh, fucking, fucking great. Anyway, this movie is good too, but... John McClane is a New York cop who has come to L.A. to see his estranged wife, um, and children for Christmas. Um, he goes to the Christmas party in Nakatomi Tower, which is this huge 80s building... <laughs> yeah (laughs) that's sort of the best way to describe it is that it is an 80s skyscraper um and the nakatomi corp is having a it is under construction and the nakatomi corp is having a um christmas party and holly uh has just made this big business deal and she's kind of the hot shot and john mcclain is feeling like bad about this because he wants he wants to be like the breadwinner you know and he feels sort of threatened by um, her 80s girl bossness, basically. <laughs> yeah. And it's ruining their marriage. Um, um this is the part that's a, a Christmas movie is, you know, the the family is disjointed. Um it, it's set at Christmas. There's this like, you know, the family and the kids, like uh, you know, trying trying to get that reunited. Um her being like really focused on the business side of it, um, him being kind of stubborn and stuck in his ways. They need to come together on Christmas Eve and, uh, you know, find the the things that each of them can bring. Like he needs to bring her back down a little bit, um, to earth because she's so focused on this like career aspect of it. Um, she needs to kind of like, uh, also influence him in some way. I've lost some of the plot of that but <laughs> yeah um, so this is all so, christmas movie stuff there's like it was like 17 minutes of christmas movie and i was like this has just been a christmas movie so far and so i tweeted unlocked like so far well there's 17 mi- minutes in and this has just been a christmas movie and then two minutes later two people were dead <laughs> <laughs> two minutes later the silenced pistols come out <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, "Oh, it's now an action movie." Um, the action movie, the action movie stuff. There's some, there's some funny like nods to Christmas stuff. There's like uh, jokes that are Christmassy jokes that happen during the action side, but it's not really a Christmas movie. The action mm-hmm. stuff is not a Christmas movie, I don't think. So this is like a, a weird hybrid. Is is so, again where I've landed. I mean, I don't remember state something that I said on. Um... One of the stairwells I really listened to was um, our episode from, like, this week last year, basically. Or the week after Christmas, because Christmas Day last year, I watched this movie with Nora. um, Because she hadn't seen it. She didn't care for it, but... um, 
the thing that I said about this movie last year is that it has this sort of structure um, where it's an action scene and then it's trying to do the dinner scene from Jaws. And then it's another big action scene and then it's trying to do the dinner scene from Jaws. <laughs> you <Yeah>. know? <laughs> and it just kind of rinse repeat until the movie ends <laughs> yeah um and it works for me it just absolutely it absolutely works for me all the like heart of this movie um just works the sentimentality just like i i totally am just absolutely grabbed by what this movie is trying to do um with the like the the nuclear family must be restored <laughs> You know? Yeah, this movie is so powerfully 1988. This, I, j- I joked last year that this movie is about how you need to go to the polls and vote for George H. W. Bush if you like the last eight years. Um, this, and I, that's this movie, true. that's what the movie is. This movie is about uh, what a shame it is that the the uh, murder of thirteen of innocent thirteen year olds by police uh, shakes the police uh, officer's ability to do his job. the movie is about like cops are good yes because cops enforce the law right or 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 cops are good because cops are men who are empowered to 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 in enforce right and wrong you know Mm mm-hmm John McClane is a cowboy. He is a hero of justice, and he like does good in the moral universe of um, Die Hard. And cops are good when they are like John McClane, and and police are bad because police are bureaucrats and kiss asses, um, just trying to move up the corporate ladder, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And that's bad. Now, you listener who is probably a Marxist-Leninist, let's be real here, <laughs> are asking, what's the difference between those two things? Don't ask Die Hard that question. Die Hard doesn't have an answer for you. Just that when cops are like cowboys, that's good. And when cops are bureaucrats, that's bad. <laughs> yeah. And it, it also has the same sort of view of like corporate America where, where Holly Gennaro and Joe Takagi are good because they're because they're family oriented people question mark and and the um ellis the the coke the the cocaine snorting um wolf of wall street type guy who's running around this movie he's bad because he's bad <laughs> yeah i don't know <laughs> it it operates like purely on a uh uh, like vibes based, who's good and bad. I was it's just I was like about to say word for word the exact thing that you yeah, said. Yeah, <laughs> just uh, like European men in suits. That's bad. Uh huh. Uh, guy who's kind of smug doing business and probably does cocaine. That's bad. Uh, woman who's a girl boss. That's good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh police officer who's kind of down to earth and uh sure is uh, endangering lots and lots of lives and uh is doing very reckless behaviors uh but is just like really trying to stop the bad guys that's good <laughs> um yeah I, 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 but I, I, 
uh, pencil pusher who uh, wants to make sure that we're doing stuff by the books, that's bad. <laughs> I the thing the thing about it is, I'm I'm really I love this movie with my whole heart. <laughs> the movie is just reasserting to you the sort of like more the sort of like moral universe of Ronald Reagan's America. You know, yeah. Like, this is just not just how people saw the world in the eighties, but how like the American military entertainment complex wanted you to see the world in the 1980s. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and all the things that you, you push on them just a little bit and they become totally incoherent. Like why are some cops good and some cops bad? Uh, vibes. Um, (laughs) like, yeah, you, you are just supposed to intuitively understand as a viewer. Oh, that's good. And that's bad. You know? Um, It's, it's so weird. It's such a weird fucking movie. <laughs> the thing is that, so like, uh, politically, this is a, a terrible movie. This is, like, yeah. one of the worst movies we've watched for this podcast in terms of the politics uh-huh. of the movie. Uh, it is still pretty fun. It's just fun yeah, to watch. They, they they blow up a bunch of stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of cool explosions. Um <laughs> It, he says, says he says the line. He says "Yippee ki yay, motherfucker," uh, and then he has to say it in every single movie ever since. Uh. Here's the thing about them. Here's the thing about that line, right? Mm-hmm. Bruce Willis has a million good lines in this movie. I don't know why "Yippee ki yay, motherfucker" becomes the the catchphrase. It's because he because- says "motherfucker." It's it's because he, he says, says motherfucker, motherfucker in every sentence in this movie. <laughs> it's because he says motherfucker though. But the the thing that makes the yippee kaye motherfucker line funny in this movie is not when Bruce Willis says it, but when Alan Rickman says it later. <laughs> yeah, that's what makes the line iconic to me. <laughs> yeah, Alan Rickman gets so many iconic line reads in this movie. I give you the F. B I. Yeah. There's something else I was going to say about this movie. But now I'm drawing a blank. Oh, uh, this is the thing that you brought up when we were watching it as well. Which is how hard this movie fights against the the fact that most of the time when you're watching a movie where uh, a group of different people with different skills are coming together to do a heist, uh, those are the people you're rooting for. <laughs> yes. yes. It tries so hard to be like, you know the, the, the one shitty cop who's like the thorn in the side of the cool heist gang uh, in your heist movie? Uh, that's who you should be rooting for. It tries really, really hard. Uh, it did not succeed for me, but I think it succeeds for a lot of people. But for me, I'm like... Hans Gruber should just get that money. I don't like the part where he wants to kill everybody in the building, but also it's a bunch of shitty rich people. So it's right. not that bad. It's like right. in the grand scheme of things. So here's the here's the like train of thought that got me to to saying that during the movie was that our friend Crystal tweeted, um, "What does like does Hans Gruber do anything wrong in the film Die Hard?" And I I replied, you know. On the one hand, he endangers and kills dozens of innocent people. On the other hand, those are all, like, you know, 
late 80s finance capitalists so like yeah shrug i don't really care about their lives honestly <laughs> you could kill them for all i fucking care um and it, so it got me thinking about like oh how funny would it be if there was a remake of this movie where hans gruber was the hero and then i was like wait that's oceans 11 and every other heist movie ever yeah <laughs> Um, <laughs> it is, it is. the remake of this movie where Hans Gruber is the hero wouldn't work because it would just be any other heist movie I mean it would work because it would be a fun heist movie but yeah yeah. well yeah <laughs> you would just be like that was a fun heist movie wait this is a remake of Die Hard <laughs> right <laughs> um yeah yeah the the I take a while for them to reveal that the plan all along has been to escape by uh, faking their death by having, like, all the hostages go to the roof, and then when the FBI comes, they'll blow it up and kill all the hostages and uh, be able to, to fake their death there and escape secretly. Um, mm-hmm. And that I'm like, okay, that is, like, a, a, a large loss of life. Um, it is still just a bunch of, like... Notably, the building is empty aside from this party with rich people. Well, but but there's like Holly's assistant, who's probably just a normal person. Yeah, she's, like she's a working class person that we can relate to. Like she's there, in this movie for two scenes. Yeah, like there's <laughs> some stuff where I'm like, if there's a different way you could figure out how to fake your fake your death or like escape or whatever with this money. Like, do that option, but also... Shrug. Bruce Willis does also endanger a lot of people, get multiple people killed, um, and honestly does more damage to the building than it yeah. seemed like their plan was to... Because they still blow up the the helipad and kill the FBI agents. So that still happened. The part that was their plan still happens. Aside mm-hmm. from the people dying when it explodes. But, like, everything else still happens there. But Bruce Willis drops multiple bombs, like, down elevator shafts and things. Yeah. <laughs> um, to try and get the police's attention. <laughs> so that they can help him out. <laughs> uh, it's it's ridiculous, the, the lengths that, like, this movie wants to continue to assure you that he's the good guy, uh, even as he is doing the most, like, reckless endangering of everybody. <laughs> there was a moment in this movie, and by the end, with the whole, like, blowing up the roof thing, they sort of erase this, but there's a moment in this movie that you were like, if John McClane wasn't there... This would have just gone fine and no one would have died. <laughs> yeah, there would have been like the the two security guards at the bottom and um Mr. Takaki. Yeah. That that was like it. <laughs> Up until then, it's revealed that they're planning to kill everybody. Um uh-huh. And I'm like that's still like those those guards seemed fine. I mean, there's security guards, but like you know, Honestly, yeah. the the rich people probably deserve it more. <laughs> um, God. Uh, so yeah, half a Christmas movie. They they do have multiple Christmas songs throughout it. Um, I mean, it does literally just is it "Let It Snow" that it ends with? 
This is the final song. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. Um, as the the uh bills rain down like snow from the top of the building. Um, <laughs> it's so good. I love this movie so much. It's not as good as the third one, but <laughs> shut up. <laughs> um. I mean, this does become, like, the blueprint for a lot of action movies that come after. You don't get speed without this movie. Yeah. No. Every day I wake up and thank God this movie gave us speed. (laughs) Yeah. You don't get Air Force One without this movie. That's true. That movie's dumb. I like that movie. (laughs) It's stupid, though. (laughs) I think I'm not sure. I think that's like an unpopular take with a lot of our friends. I think a lot of our friends are like, no, Air Force One is stupid derogatory. I am team Air Force One is stupid complimentary. Yeah, <laughs> I think I'm in that. I think I'm in that boat. Um, Stairs and Die Hard. Uh, I feel like an S. We got a lot of yeah. stairs. There's a lot, a lot of, of stairs. There are two different murders on stairs. Yeah. <laughs> um, we got a lot of running up and down stairs. Mm-hmm. Uh, where people are, what stairs they're on. I mean, the elevators are also key here, but like stairs and elevators. I think we can give this an S. Um. Well, yeah. Um, that just about does it. Next time, we will be back for our uh, end of year episode. We'll tell you a ranking of like our top 15 movies to be settled on. Yeah, top 15. Um, yeah, we'll, so we'll do another segment one. I'll probably watch another 27 movies or something next week. Um, and then we will do our like top 15 movies that we watched in 2022 and any reflections about the year please if you have questions export audio podcast at gmail.com next week would be an excellent week to send questions i don't think we got any questions this week because i didn't i didn't check and uh we didn't ask for questions this week well i did i did ask for the ones for the because we were going to record on wednesday which i don't know if we're going to do anymore but um Mm -hmm. yeah well Um, i yeah, send us your questions. I'm gonna. I'm. I'm putting up the email right now just to check. Well, like I think I specifically asked for questions for that uh, end of year pod. So, mm-hmm. um, I don't know if we got any Die Hard. We multiple people watch Die Hard. Yeah, I, I, Santo and Crystal, I think, watch Die Hard. Yeah. Um. Yeah, it doesn't look like any questions, but that's fine. We didn't ask we didn't ask for them. But please, for our next episode, export audio podcast at gmail.com, put stairwells in the subject line somewhere. Um ask us a, tell us your favorite movies of twenty twenty one or twenty twenty two. God. <laughs> um, <clears throat> not I mean you can tell us your favorite movies that came out in twenty twenty two if you're someone who keeps up on that stuff more. I'd be curious to know. But we just um, wanna know like your yeah, your favorite ones that you saw for the first time. Yeah. Or your favorite rewatches, you know. Um, Persona had been some time, and I was surprised by how much I loved it on rewatch, even though I remembered 
loving it, you know? If you have, like, oh, I rewatched this this year, and it really just, like, bowled me over, tell us about that. We would love to hear about yeah. that. Ooh. A movie that I watched for the first time this week might supplant one on my list, so I'm I'm going to say the one that's getting supplanted, because I'm pretty sure this is happening. Uh, mm-hmm. So The Hidden will no longer be on there. Um, Dang. I enjoyed that movie a lot, though. That movie's really fun. Um, I'm sure people can guess what supplanted it, but I gotta, I gotta reorganize my list. I'm like unhappy with how my list is organized as of right now. Yeah. The problem is I've just watched so many good things that it doesn't feel complete unless I say the first, the, my top 25 movies of 2022 and that list is on my letterboxd and maybe I'll like point people toward that a little more on the next episode. Um, but but um, I just I like look at my top fifteen. I'm like, oh, but I don't have this and I don't have that, and I you know, yeah. But we can we can cross that bridge when we get there. Well, anyway, where can people find you online? Uh, people can find me at Fox Momnia on Twitter and co-host um, on both of those places i have a pinned post um that points to all of the podcasts that i do uh because i have four including this one uh, but i'll quick run through the other ones um my anime podcast is ghost divers uh, i do that with my co-host connor uh we also have a podcast called pondering Puton, which is we're reading through Cromartie high school the rate that it was published um in the the weekly magazine uh and then we it's kind of just a hangout comedy podcast, but like because where us, it's our weird sense of humor is often imbued into it, uh, which is that we sometimes think that stuff is funny. There's a certain like anti humor to our humor, so uh, <laughs> that I think comes up on it. Um, but uh, and then the other podcast that I do is around the long fire. Uh, which is with M of Abnormal Mapping, and that is on Abnormal Mapping. Um, we're reading through uh, Icelandic Saga, so right now we're in the middle of Lockstyla Saga. Um, and I had to, I had to uh, make a call that we, we weren't going to record this week. Um, I, th- I have the time. I could do the recording, but I don't think I have the time to read, um, to do the actual reading. So I'm bummed about that because I enjoy that podcast. It's it's fun doing that. Um, but yeah, I just uh, still have prep to do for forever. Yeah. Part of it is I'm supposed to pack to go to Michigan and with this cough. Who knows if that's happening? So we'll see. <laughs> um, <laughs> anyway. Uh, where can people find you? People can find me on twitter.com slash autumnal underscore coffee on cohost.org um, slash autumnal um, at <clears throat> sorry, I'm tired. <laughs> cohost.org slash autumnal. Um, the pinned post on my uh, co-host page is um, a every week I've been doing like roundups of here are all the things that have been coming out on the network this week. So you can see like links to Patreon posts and explanations of Patreon tiers and links to the free feeds, links to everybody's social media. 
I always try to like plug um, some other podcasts that friends do. And so I wanted to plug Totally Reprise this week. Um, please, we're not watching David Lynch right now. And so we haven't mentioned in a few weeks. You should go listen to Totally Reprise. They just finished up watching The Return. Um, they just put out their final episode on The Return. And now they're going to be watching the two National Treasure movies and Face Off. So um, great time. If you aren't a Peaks person or if you're exhausted by Peaks, go listen to Reprise now that they're doing some Nicolas Cage things for fun, you know? And then pretty soon they'll be yeah. doing Columbo. I think they're going to do a fucking excellent job with Columbo. I think that show is tailor-made for for how they do shows. Um, I cannot recommend uh, Totally Reprise enough. Um, and yeah, cohost.org slash autumnal. My pinned post has everything that's going on with us. Um, so, yeah, check that out. <clears throat> um pardon my franchise you know coffee comic books gotham city limits i've been doing a lot of stuff lately it's kind of hard to plug everything right now <laughs> yeah that about does it i guess yeah um man imagine if i wasn't sick and had to go into the office tomorrow and i had to wake up at five Okokoro is real. Okokoro is real. Since dead, the bats have left the bell tower, the victim.
have been bled than velvet lines The black box The little goose is dead The little goose is dead
This is episode 69. Nice, 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 nice.